0: Directors Club podcast. I am Jim Lazkowski.
1: Patrick Repol. We don't have a guest this week. I thought you should know that right off the top. Um, you know, we just we wanted to take it down a little bit. It's a silent film. We don't need too much talking, you know what I mean? I'm
0: not going to talk at all. <laughs> yeah. Neither.
1: We this That'd is our first a- this is our first podcast done entirely in uh, in uh, little what are title cards. First First, co- done in uh, title cards. Hmm. First podcast ever done in title cards.
0: That would be good. Mm-hmm.
1: Put it up on YouTube. I think people have had enough of talkies. As far as they're Especially definitely, us. they definitely had enough of us talking. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Ugh.
0: No, but this. How is, are you doing, Jim? Uh, getting over a cold. Yeah. You know, it takes two years to get over a cold. How was your Christmas? Um, pretty uneventful. Not, yeah. you know, got a couple of. DVDs like Rock of Ages
1: which was mm-hmm. very upsetting. I got a my aunt and uncle once gave me a copy of Anger Management. Um, uh, the Adam Sandler classic. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: But mostly gift cards, so I'm just going to go buy some of my favorite films of the year, Teaser Alert. Yeah. For the next episode. Um yeah. <laughs> so our next episode is going to be alert. Ep- it's going to be epic. God damn it. You
1: said teaser alert. Yeah. Instead oh, of spoiler man. alert.
0: I'm starting a whole new vernacular. Yeah. Yeah. That's you're gonna going to ship it out down. a
1: whole new door. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. <sighs> yeah,
0: This is going to be a shorter episode than what you're used to. Kind a lower quality one. In <laughs> <general>. <laughs> mm, it's up to debate. It's all yeah.
1: subjective. You know. We are going to be covering one of the greatest directors of all time. I am excited about that. Absolutely. Foster I am Keaton. too. And what's
0: funny is... Uh, Patrick's got me outnumbered for that guy. I haven't seen as much Buster Keaton. as That's he true. Has. This
1: is probably one of the few directors that I'm well versed in. More well versed in than you. Yeah, I'm more well versed in Michael Keaton mm-hmm. than Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton is definitely one of uh, one of those directors who, uh, as I was sort of aimlessly going through different film canons uh, when I was my short stint in uh, in film school, going through their library, and I was. Like, watching a lot of experimental films by Kenneth Anger, and then I watched, like, John Waters movies, and, <laughs> I, like, I bounced back and forth, and the ones that really stuck with me were all of the Buster Keaton movies, and they had all of them, so yeah. I watched, and though that Kino, there's a big box set, but you can buy the films individually as well, Uh it's it's incredible. Uh, I think the box set's probably like 80 bucks or something like that. But if you can... Oh, it's worth it. If you can get it, you you are basically buying the greatest comedies ever made. Um, because the problem is w- with Keaton is his short films are... I, I find a lot better. Not a lot better because, I mean, he's made really masterpiece features. But his short films uh, are just so great. Um
0: yeah, I watched three of those as well. So. Yeah,
1: we'll be talking about that a little later. But yeah. yeah, Buster Keaton is just someone I've always been madly in love with. And uh, my roommate's been out of town. And just me sitting alone in an empty apartment, just laughing as loudly in your as underwear. I underwear. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I don't. Why bother with the. Uh, why bother with fancies such as underwear when you're alone in the apartment? Of course. Um, but God, he's just so brilliant and so funny so i'm really excited that we're going to cover him and he's one of the few few comedy directors i think where there's a lot of meat there that you Mm -hmm. can really talk about other than just here's a scene that was hysterical here's a scene that was hysterical
0: yeah i would definitely say that after seeing the two films we're going to be discussing the general and seven chances yes seven brides for seven chances yeah good stuff. which is a
1: homeward bound uh, Mm -hmm. spinoff
0: Oh, speaking of following up on that teaser...
1: Speaking of Homeward Bound, Milo and Otis, I'm glad you brought it up. Did you know it's a Japanese movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't, actually. Yeah, it is. Hmm. Um, also, so... like, 30 cats died in the making of it. Oh, no. Like, apparently the... the... That can't be true. <laughs> yeah, like, apparently, like, they just really brutalized those animals Great. in the making of that movie. Now I'm
0: gonna fucking cry when Yeah, I watched Milo and Otis again. Mm-hmm. Oh, well...
1: Yeah. Also, um, they ate the parrot from Polly at the end of it. No reason. They just ate it.
0: Are we going to just go through it and we're going to get to
1: Gordy again eventually? Gordy? Yeah. All roads lead back to Gordy. (laughs) You didn't didn't let me. I was going to connect Polly to Andre, Mm -hmm. and then I was going to go to Zeus and Roxanne, and then I was going to go to Gordy. In preparation for our
0: upcoming Clip Show episode, I realized there were three episodes in a row where I mentioned the film Breakdown. Like, it was a big revelation. Mm-hmm. Like I hadn't mentioned it last episode, it was crazy. My mind is stuck in the land of Kurt Russell versus JT Walsh, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but with regards to that, we brought up Gordy a few times too, and you're going to be hearing some of the highlights of the first 50 episodes. If I can get through them all by next week, <laughs> I'm on episode 35, so it's it's been quite the treat. Yeah, like I said, I've been. I feel like I, I love Jim and Patrick even more than ever now. Mm-hmm. Like I seriously feel transfixed. And um, I could take or leave them,
1: honestly. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, you gotta listen to some some clips and some highlights. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of manic laughter yeah. that will ensue as a result. But no, there's also a couple of highlights here and there from some real from a, people even smarter than us. Who were our guests on previous episodes.
1: Even smarter than us, Jim. Mm-hmm. Please do tell.
0: I know. Can't believe it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so next uh, episode, it's going to be epic. Uh, we're going to do our favorite films of 2012. Uh, and we really encourage you to leave some voicemails in addition to uh, sending us emails of your top ten of 2012.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of you guys are sort of holding off till you could see Django and Zero Dark 30. Zero Dark 30. And, Dark 30 and uh, that's my boy. That's my boy. Some of you, that's my boy, just came to Redbox. So you're, yeah. you know, you, you're waiting for that. You're, uh, you know, you, you wanted to, uh, I don't know. Uh, I had nowhere to go with that. Uh, okay. But yeah, um, go ahead and send those out.
0: Yeah. We we'd love to hear your 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 beautiful voices out there too. Or if you
1: don't want to do a top 10, you just want to talk about one movie. Yeah. Um just keep it like under a minute. That's yeah. pretty much the only requirement. You could talk about the movie year as a whole. You could talk about your favorite episode of Burn Notice if you want to. I don't know. We don't really listen. Does anybody
0: watch Burn Notice?
1: <laughs> Everybody huh. on the internet who has there's, – there's a, there's a couple tiers of people. Like they're the people who the only television they watch is they watch Mad Men and Breaking Bad and like uh, maybe a show on HBO. Homeland. Yeah. Homeland. Yeah, or Homeland. And then there's like a next tier down where they're like, no, you know, Sons of Anarchy is actually a really good show. And it's – yeah, I don't get it. And like they're the people mm. who watch Dexter even though Dexter's really bad. Yeah. Um, and then there's the the third tier people. And the third tier people will watch TNT shows. Burn notice, psych. and they will go, "No, it's pretty good. No, it's like the, the you you know you you haven't watched it, so you don't know, but it's pretty good." And they they insist that like they're excited that White Collar is coming back.
0: Was Monk on Psych or was Monk, Monk on TNT? I
1: think Monk was on TNT. Hmm.
0: I've always wanted to see that because I love Tony Shalhoub.
1: Yeah, but it's a. I mean, it's it's TNT. I don't want to. Ins- I don't want to insult anyone, even no. though that's what I just did, but. Uh, people, I actually, I, I realized, because um, recently in theaters they've been advertising, you know, like in the pre-show stuff before the actual coming attractions, they'll show mm-hmm. like, they'll advertise TV shows. I realized there's actually no, like the only difference between a TNT show and a Showtime show is that a Showtime has to show two women topless per episode. <gasps> and they show, and they say, fuck, like, like Shameless Whoa. is the kind of shit that they'll, what, wait, what is that
0: reaction? I'm excited now. I gotta watch some of these shows.
1: Okay, God. I don't need I your sarcasm. Was I was making a real point. That's okay. And you went and you went sarcastic on me, and you uh, just ruined everything. I'm just shameless. You ruined Christmas, Jim.
0: Try and get your voicemails and emails in by January 4th. We'd really, really appreciate it. We might be recording that day, or a day or two after that. We'll see.
1: Yeah. Two two four three
0: six six nine five two eight. That's the voicemail number mm-hmm. and directors club podcast at com. We really want to hear from you guys. We're really excited. We got uh, a few um, emails thus far, but we're, we're really stoked for more and we'll see. We're going to decide whether or not we're going to combine the best of 2012 along with the clip show. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Knowing I think I
1: personally think that would go way too long you're, if you you're, did that. You might be right.
0: You may be crazy.
1: Yeah. It just might be a lunatic you're looking for, Jim. You're right, Jim. I rode my motorcycle <laughs> in the rain. I know. <laughs> that, I love that let's he says that. The, let's
0: turn into Billy Joel. What's, it, what's, what's
1: what's better when he's like, I even rode my motorcycle in the rain. Like that's the craziest thing anyone's ever done. It is. Or the or what? Okay, what's the crazy? Like either that line or in we didn't start the fire at the very end. Rock and roller cola wars. I can't take it anymore. Which is Cola the last wars? line. Yeah, like he's talking about Vietnam and he's talking about like the Kennedy yeah, assassination. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at the end it's like, ah, Cola Wars, Pepsi versus Coke,
0: <laughs> I can't take it anymore. Wow, I always thought it was Color Wars.
1: Color Wars? Time. Yeah. Were there rock and roller color wars? I didn't, I wasn't as yeah, we, cognizant in that. Maybe. Yeah? Yeah. It was like in living color, like <laughs> f- fighting faith no more? and mm-hmm. I, Well, you know, I black couldn't,
0: versus white.
1: Yeah, there's not a single other... Uh, I guess Lenny Kravitz versus whoever the white equivalent of Lenny Kravitz is.
0: <laughs> I had to think about that. Yeah. So this is what you get with a guest-free episode, and we're really stoked to uh, continue on here. Because, uh, yeah, like I said, next episode's the big one. We're going to try and catch up with everything between now and then. Uh-huh. And you'll uh, definitely hear us talk about Django, I'm sure.
1: Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's shit. Maybe Quentin Tarantino don't know what the fuck he's doing behind a camera. Okay, Spike Lee.
0: <laughs> wow. Let's just turn this into the Billy Joel cast.
1: Mm-hmm. Was the do you, do you remember when you were young enough to think "Piano Man" was a good song?
0: Yeah, but then you know the college frat boys ruined that and "Sweet really? Caroline" and college frat boys love Billy American Joel. Pie. Well, just Piano Man, because it's a song that, you know, if it comes on the jukebox, they're going to sing at the top of their lungs while Mm -hmm. they're drunk.
1: That was actually my school's quote-unquote unofficial song, where, like, every (laughs) variety show and, like, every, like, school function, like, the last song that always played was Piano Man. Really? No reason. There's no connection to Billy Joel A song about some douchebag in a bar who thinks he's too good to be playing piano in that bar. And all the people who are like, hey, man, you're really great. You shouldn't be playing in this bar. (laughs) Like, no connection to a college prep Catholic school in Lyle, Illinois. But for some reason, that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting choice. I'd be a lot happier if it was Captain Jack. That would be a great one. Because Captain Jack will get you high tonight and take you to his special island. I'd play Jars of Clay (laughs) and make everybody happy. I could probably reference Chars of Clay songs too, Jim. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, I grew up in Ooh. a very Christian household. That's true. My parents, they bought me uh, Christian rock CDs and they are like, uh-huh. here, here's some rockin' good stuff. And uh, it was like Chars of Clay and the Newsboys and Audio Adrenaline and <laughs> oh, no. Stephen Curtis goddamn Chapman.
0: Yeah, I had I had a couple of friends who were uber religious, and yeah. I got exposed to
1: some jars of clay. And if I minute. can't swim after forty days, and my mind is crushed by the crashing waves. Oh my god, this is amazing! Yeah, no, I I know jars of clay, Jim. You can't pretend that jars that of I don't. clay
0: club, <laughs> whole podcast,
1: <laughs> whole podcast, baby. I want that. <laughs> good. Oh my god
0: oh. <laughs> So I'm scared I'm literally scared right now Because yeah. I can't ask the guest to go first During the What we watched segment
1: You have the smoothest segues In the business Jim I just want you to know that Yeah, It's very good that you stopped we the can- show <laughs> To talk into the microphone like this. Movies, movies on my mind. Tell me just what should I watch? Ghost Dad or Leonard Part 6. Youth without youth, Tetra Twist. Samurai's or revenge flicks. Can't decide just what to seek. So we take a bit from all. That is what we watch this week. It's what we watch this week. It's what we watch this week. It's what we watched this week. Oh, so Patrick
0: asked me first. Yeah, I got there. I'm quick like that. You are. You're a quick thinker. Mm -hmm. I'm a little slow. Speaking of slow, but rewarding. All it took was a simple inquiry to a couple of film critic friends. Would I like this movie called The Loneliest Planet? Hmm. Is it worth watching now that it's on Netflix Instant? And I notice it's made what of... What character <laughs> is
1: this? <laughs> this is You're like happens- this pedantic college professor <laughs> who delivers all his lectures in questions that are actually statements. <laughs> like-
0: I don't know. I think I get that from one of the few big laughs I get from Family Guy when Stewie does that. Uh, uh, oh, Yeah. Yeah. And Stewie does that to Brian when
1: he asks him about his novel. I don't know if I think any of the character stuff in – I like any of the – like – I don't either. I – well, that's the – I mean any of the jokes that come from oh, the characters okay, yeah, as okay, opposed yeah, right. to the cutaways. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I, I would say a good like 30 percent of their cutaways are funny, which means 70 percent aren't. Yeah. But like I – like a good 30 percent are. And that's – but the actual stuff where they're like, oh, no one likes Meg, and Chris is dumb, and Stewie is condescending, and blah, blah, blah. Like, well, it's, it's their version of the
0: Sideshow Bob hitting the rake over and over again, where it's just, it just goes on way o- That is way the basis of Family
1: Guy. So yeah. The Loneliest Planet is about a man stepping on a rake.
0: Basically. You're not far off.
1: No, no. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt no, and insult you. No, go ahead. It's
0: okay. I forgive you every time. No. <laughs> so I noticed it's made a few top ten lists for 2012, and uh, 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 former and future guest Eric Childress basically just sent me an email saying you will love it, without really saying if he did. <laughs> but I probably should take him at his word because I kind of did. Uh, but it, it's one of those languid movies that has been a bit divisive uh, due to the fact that, honestly, there's only one major incident in the entire film. Mm-hmm. And it happens about an hour in. Mm-hmm. So you got to have some patience, bro. Okay. But again,
1: you're just switching to another <laughs> character. <laughs> <laughs> See, we have what? no guests to discipline what is the, us. What is the movie about? Um... It's
0: basically a young couple treks through the Georgian, I want to say, wilderness Mm -hmm. in Russia, I want to say, I think. Uh, It's like, you know, they're going on a backpacking expedition together, and they only have uh, a local guide to accompany them. Uh, And at first I was thinking, what is this building up to? It's really just them walking a lot. It's almost like Jerry.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds like a setup for a Gus Van Zandt movie. Especially the idea of one inciting incident an hour in.
0: Yes, it is. I mean, yeah. like, I, I would say it almost pays direct homage to that uh, scenario. And I was also thinking, how the hell can you know you talk about the incident for the purposes of discussion? Because it's tough. You don't want to know what it is specifically. Uh-huh. Because you want to be taken aback by it, like I was. Uh They get stepped on by Godzilla. Mm, (laughs) No, 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 no. I think what's interesting about what happens is how it echoes through the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. so remarkably, and yet it is never addressed out loud through the couple. And I was like, why are they not talking about what happened at all? Because I think this director is mostly interested in uh, internalized... Frustration and all the actions are pretty much articulated through so the, body
1: language. So is it is it exploring this couple played by Gail Garcia Bernal and who else? And some other girl that's brand new. Okay, you don't know. No. Um, is it exploring their relationship or is it being more uh, lyrical? Where it's a little bit they're of they're more ciphers. It's
0: an understated exploration of their relationship, mm-hmm. but it's very lyrical. It's very it's there's a lot of long shots. There's moments where there's like really gorgeous long shots of just this incredible landscape and you hear the score and then bam, you know, smash cut to no score. And then them walking and feeling really disconnected based on what happened. It felt like kind of this examination of man versus nature and kind of like how instinct really can fuck with you. Uh, Because deep down you're you, you would not normally do something like that under those circumstances. But it was just something that he did without really thinking about it. And it's kind of uh, difficult because like, the ramifications of this one thing that occurs, it really fucks with the, my mind. <laughs> In a way, Like, it stuck with me. And similar to something like Meek's Cutoff. Where I was thinking a lot about it, and yet it's there's this movie is it, it it's it's super slow. It's, it's it's a lot of hiking, like, like Meeks
1: Cut Off, like Cherry. Yeah,
0: it is. You're waiting for the characters to address what happened because that's what you wouldn't expect. That's what you want from a movie. You want confrontation. You want them to externalize what they're feeling, and you don't get that. So I'm warning you <laughs> going in if you decide to give this a watch don't expect catharsis. And that's something I would uh, wonder how I'd feel about this movie if you'd gotten it, because that sort of dramatic externalization is something I respond to, and yet it doesn't happen. And I feel like it's, it, it worked. It worked effectively because it creeps into you. It's a haunting movie. Um, it creates a lot of tension in a very understated way through the rest of their journey together. But it's kind of like Jerry meets Before Sunset um, without all the, you know, insane amount of talking that Before Sunset right. has. <laughs> I was
1: going to say, it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of talking. Not
0: a lot, no. Um, you know, there's there's definitely other moments of, oh, fuck, that happens, you know, like in the final act. But um, I, I think it's a really interesting exploration of relationships and um, how those dynamics can be disrupted unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. When, especially because they seem really, everything seems really idyllic and they're really content. And then all of a sudden, bam, something happens. And you expect a lot more to result from this incident. And it doesn't only on the inside. And you watch them struggle with it on the inside. And I like the experience. I really, really love this movie. Don't know if it'll make my top ten, but I think uh, it's
1: going to stay with uh, me. The fact that I, one, have not seen this film, and two, you don't want to spoil anything I don't, about it. I don't. Yeah. Uh, like, it makes this a very hard thing to talk about, but I'm trying to get a grip on what you're saying. Like, uh, is it is it surreal that, like do, like, do you buy that this couple wouldn't? talk about quote-unquote it about the inciting incident or does it seem like
0: it's that's hard because it's me projecting a little bit because i'm expecting that because that's what i would have done i would have addressed it and they don't and i don't
1: i th- but do they set up the characters as people who wouldn't or um, i wanna, I guess what i'm trying to get it is do yeah. these people feel like three-dimensional human beings yes. or do these people feel like like people Metaphors. set up, yeah. People set up to uh, to uh, sort of create a larger sort of statement or lar- larger sort of tale. No,
0: I think they're set up very well. I mean, again, we talk about you know long buildups with something like Wages of Fear. Here, it's you know very m- more minimalized, and it just involves two people really and an outside guide who sort of witnesses it. But um, I think it's just the shock, and they don't want to talk about it. I, th- I mean, there's definitely, like I said, through body language and other um, moments later in the film, in a way, I think they are addressing it, but just not directly, not out loud, not like in a therapy session, like, I can't believe that thing that happened, you know? And in a way, I kind of appreciated it, because that's, it's sort of playing with conventions and expectations in that way. And I like that. Um, I was surprised because, again, I'm expecting it, but I'm glad that it didn't give me that because it it affected me in a different way that I'm used to with most movies. Uh So, I mean, I think if you're fans of Jerry or Meek's Cutoff, you might respond to it. But I also think it's a really good, again, micro-level sort of examination of just two people who seem very happy, and then all of a sudden something can change that within a moment's notice, especially when you're out in the middle of nowhere, so I think it's a beautiful movie it's beautifully shot uh, I'm not too familiar with this director; I think she's only done one other movie, so I'm gonna probably be checking it out. It's pretty good <laughs> to say the least okay. I think it's yeah good. no i've I've heard it's of it it's on Netflix instant. I encourage you to watch it. Uh, it, it. I will say that it keeps it from being a great movie. Like it's kind of an a minus a- for me because it does feel long. I feel like it could have been a ninety minute movie if it wanted it to be. Oh, how long is it? It's two hours. Uh huh. So I mean, I mean, there's just a lot of trekking and there's a lot of beautiful shots of them. You know, uh, yeah, backpacking. And I wish I had seen
1: this because. Like, it's almost like Uncle Boone Me or like yeah. film, or me or you know Meek's cut off a lot of films that we talked about in our last like, end of the year episode that are. Uh <laughs> that I feel like it's difficult the, to talk about. They're inter- already level. they're already hard to talk about, but then when also you the other person has not seen them trying to describe them, like yeah. how the hell do you describe the appeal of Uncle Boon Me? Uh <laughs> what what's the full title of that film? Uncle Boon Me lives past lives or <laughs> Yeah. Uncle Boon Me's past lives or something. I can't remember the full title of that film, but like that's like that's a movie I there's no way to anyone who hasn't seen it. I'd be able to describe why Uncle Boomy
0: recalls his past yeah recalls lives. his yes, past yes. lives
1: yeah no way I'd be able to describe why I liked it no so I,
0: I'm same here it's it's a I would definitely say both are meditative films like they're they they sort of invade your mind in very interesting ways yeah so I I, I don't know I, I really responded to it and thanks Mike D'Angelo for bringing it to my attention he's a he's a great film critic and Eric. Yes, Childress, and more, more Childress. directly bringing it. To well, I, I saw it. I saw it on his top ten, uh, Mike D'Angelo's list, and um, I, t- I I really do like his writing quite a bit. We don't always agree, but at the same time, I uh, I trust him. Oh yeah. <laughs> so,
1: what have you seen lately? Um, I watched. Uh, I, I, there was the Music Box had a double double feature where they uh, played Kill Bill Volume One and Two. Oh and i also played grindhouse wow so i saw uh, i saw both of those um i could talk briefly. that's a long day yeah it's a 7 hour it's a yeah. 7 hour trek mm-hmm. um i was kind of hoping that they'd go the extra mile and like splice uh tr- cuz the music box has a bunch of trailers they always bring out for the music box massacre and stuff like that oh
0: i hope they include the trailers for no grindhouse. no they
1: well grindhouse that's part of the print that's oh, okay. not Good. you can't you can't there's literally no way you could make grindhouse Like, you could even construct the print without including the trailers. But um, uh, Kill Bill is probably better than I remember. But also, um, like, I just, it makes you, I think Kill Bill is probably even more than Pulp Fiction. I think the fact that Pulp Fiction is, like, a perfect movie and Kill Bill isn't makes Kill Bill only a better example of why Quentin Tarantino is so exciting a filmmaker because yeah. he makes these movies that are so odd and approach things from such strange directions and are really oddly structured mm-hmm. um to the and to the point where i there are no quentin tarantino movies that i'd put in my top 10 movies of all time probably not in my top 20 movies of all time like there're no quentin tarantino movies that i'm just like madly in love with i think they're all brilliant but they're but yeah. on a personal level there's i don't really there's not any of his movies that are just really important to me or that I connect with, but I'm always more excited about his films coming out than anyone else's of the year because he is the most consistently able to surprise you and most consistently able to go. And he has this like crazy imagination, mm-hmm. um, and I think Kill Bill probably is the best example of his imagination.
0: It makes me very happy that we had a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and a new Quentin Tarantino movie in the same year. Yeah. They're my two favorite. Like, I mean, in terms of new movies, they're coming out. I can't wait to see them. Right, exactly.
1: So. Paul Thomas, I would say now that There Will Be Blood and The Master have proved themselves to be very similar in approach. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that maybe, like, Paul Thomas Anderson... Because what I'm talking about specifically is the fact that Quentin Tarantino, you don't know what he's going to do. Right. You don't know. Like, if you. Like, Reservoir Dogs gives no indication for Pulp Fiction. And Pulp Fiction gives no indication for Jackie, Jackie Brown. Yeah. And Jackie Brown gives no indication for the Kill Bill films. And those films give no indication for Death Proof. And Death Proof and none of the other films give any indication for <laughs> Inglorious Bastards. And yet yeah. they're all very Quentin Tarantino films. Yes. Whereas Paul Thomas Anderson, I feel he's had two phases of his career. He's had the. Uh, Boogie Nights phase, and he said that there will be blood phase. And, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, a lot of what I've heard about Django makes it sound extremely similar to Inglorious Bastards. So, but also, Tarantino's apparently retiring um, for good? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> it's... No. Quote-unquote retiring, quote-unquote for good, you know? Uh, ah. eh, yeah, he, he's and, got a be, couple more, I would think. Well no, no no, I mean not he didn't say he's not making any more movies, right, but right. he's saying that he's not gonna be the kind of person who's gonna keep it. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. He's forty nine. He's almost mm-hmm. fifty, so like he's he he doesn't want to be the person making movies when he's seventy. So sure. and with the rate he makes films, that means what, we have two, three more yeah. Tarantino films, so uh maybe he has found a groove. But my point is um that Kill Bill is probably a more better example of that because it's so weird and odd and because it's so inconsistent from scene to scene. One of the things that I, I saw it with my girlfriend Carly, and one of the things that drove Carly nuts is like the the insane amount of fonts he uses, like in all the title cards. <laughs> She's so hyper aware There's, of that stuff. Well, right, but I mean, it's it's, it's a true. very it's a very like that's the point he's making is he's trying to find this sort of like he, he's finding a waypoint, like uh, a sort of meeting ground in between all of these weird exploitation yeah. genres and all these films that he loves and.
0: He's throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks.
1: Right. And uh I mean, I think in Pulp Fiction you don't you can't tell. Like Pulp Fiction is clearly inspired by
0: like all all,
1: all of his movies. Yeah. Not not like honestly Pulp Fiction's not that inspired by actual pulp fiction. Like there's no there's no detective novel, there's no like giallo Leonard, that you're going to see. Bit. Well, yeah, Elmore mm. Leonard is different. Elmore yeah. Leonard <laughs> like if you're talking about typical pulp fiction, sure, sure. Like it's the it's really not it's more that it's more that all of the genres that did inspire him were very yeah. kind of dirty and mm-hmm. and uh not necessarily renowned and not necessarily as well scholared as they are now in twenty twelve. Right. Um but so that's sort of what he was referring to. But <laughs> Uh, like, that movie feels very complete and very perfect, and it doesn't feel like it has any loose ends. It doesn't feel like it has any no, weird angles. All. Like, that movie's just tight and perfect. And Kill Bill is the opposite. Kill Bill mm-hmm. is just his id, and there's just a scene where it's just, oh, now there's narration randomly. And yeah. now there isn't. Like, I think Sonny Chiba randomly narrates uh, right after the bride kills Vivica A. Fox. Mm-hmm. And that's the only time you ever hear his narration. And right. there's a section that's in black and white. And there's then there's a section in color, and then there's an anime section, and then there's the you know. Have you ever watched them both back to back before? I just did. Oh well, I mean, I'm just saying. Oh, before, before then, that, no, okay. Because no. I remember
0: just feeling pretty restless with Kill Bill Volume Two, and it wasn't like because I was like, oh man, it has to be nonstop. I, if action. I just
1: if I if I just say one thing about Kill Bill Volume Two, uh, I think it suffers. I mean. Both films suffer from this, but I'd say Kill Bill Volume Two, since it's more character-driven, it suffers from the fact that Uma Thurman isn't that great. She's fine; she doesn't do a bad job, but she doesn't blow you away like, say, every other Tarantino protagonist, like yeah. lead lead role, Christoph like Waltz. And, yeah, she's yeah. not Christoph Waltz. She is, you know, she isn't. Um, she isn't Samuel Jackson and John Travolta, Pam she, Greer and Robert. She Forster. isn't Pam Greer. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. she's. It's clearly the weakest lead performance. Uh, I mean, other than Death Proof, but he's playing a whole different game in Death Proof. So, yeah. uh, by the way, that's the other thing. I learned Death Proof is one of my favorite Tarantino movies.
0: It's uh, funny when I'm watching it, I feel that way. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, it, it and achieves, he's sort of renounced it. Perfectly it. He's achie- like he, uh, like the Hollywood Reporter directors roundtable thing that came out. He said that Death Proof was his worst film. No, he's okay. Th- I hate
1: <laughs> that people are taking from that. I know from that article. I don't agree. That he, No, 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 no. But I'm saying he doesn't say it's his worst film. He says that it had to be his worst film, and oh, by that wording, okay. it means. It had to be his least technically achieved film. It had to be his most underwritten film. It had to be the, he the film He intentionally did that? Yeah, of course. Because okay, yeah, how yeah, else yeah. are you going to duplicate films Grind of knows. that era yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're going to be as slick and as well-written and everything as, the, as sure. his previous movies? He, his words were it had to be his worst film. I don't uh, think it's his worst okay. film at all. Yeah, um, And I don't think he thinks necessarily that it's his worst film. I just um, kept hearing that replicated yeah, over exactly. other podcasts. exactly. It's irritating. It's very irritating that yeah, but um,
0: taken out of context.
1: Um, but anyway, uh, so uh, but you know, Death Proof works perfectly uh, for what it tries to do. I love all the talking. I think I do all too. the talking really works. Yep. I think also it works on one all grindhouse movies. If you ever watch like really bad movies that are you know shot primarily to be shown in drive-ins. If you watch Drive-In Massacre, if you watch any of those movies, they're mostly talking, and that's because they can only afford one car exploding, and they can afford, like... They can afford so many scenes in which guns are fired, and that's sure. it. So you're not going to get an action-packed movie. You're going to get a movie with two spectacular scenes and talking. But what Quentin Tarantino does is all the driving chase scenes, everything, are much better than any of the drive chase scenes that you'd seen in any of those films. And all the talking is much better than any of the talking you see in this film. the films. The stunt work is phenomenal. Yeah, the stunt work, but also just the dialogue. I yeah. mean, some people, Tarantino's dialogue annoys them. I can't, you know, I can't tell them otherwise, but – uh, if you like Tarantino's dialogue, all the dialogue is. I was never great. bored watching right, Death right, right. Proof. Death Proof's great. Yeah. Um, so I Terror, saw
0: that Planet Terror is kind of something I I haven't actually revisited at all since I saw it. It's, it's, in the theater. And it's so
1: stupid. I don't know what he was going for. Yeah, that's like, what I felt. I don't when know I was why, because Tarantino's is such is so driven by a central thesis, yeah. which is I want to show you why I love these kinds of movies. So he like makes the best possible movie and he's referencing all sorts of movies. He's referencing not just, you know, White Lightning and Vanishing Point and all these other movies that that they explicitly mention the movie. Like there are shots in Death Proof that are literally just ripped off from Russ Meyer. Like Russ Meyer had this oh, thing. Yeah. Russ Meyer had this thing where he'd always have something in the foreground. Uh, like a like a piggy bank or a tchotchke or something, and in the background there'd be, like, a naked woman changing or something like that. <laughs> and there's a scene in the very beginning of Death Proof where Jungle Julia is sort of resting on the couch, and, it's, mm-hmm. and it focuses on a tchotchke in the foreground. It's a total Russ Meyer shot. So, like, he's showing you, this is why I love all these movies. Right. and this. But I'm going to do it, and I'm going to limit, I'm going to restrain myself the way that the people who made these movies I love were restrained, unlike all the other films I've made where I've had this this kind of freedom and budget and all these amazing actors. You know, like, I'm going to limit myself one incredible actor and that's Kurt Russell and everyone else, I'm just going to find, you know, like, uh, I mean, obviously, Russ, Russ, uh, Rose McGowan and and stuff like, but mostly it's just, you know, he limited himself. Does Michael Park show up in that? No, I don't think he does. Yeah, but he's, he's a, <laughs> I know. I know. Just... I know everyone, they love every supporting actor who happens oh, to be yeah. in movies that they yeah. like, but, Michael Parks doesn't do anything in Death Proof, so when people cite him as a reason Death Proof is great, well, you're not watching Death Proof. No, no, no. Uh, no. But anyway. But then it shows up. So it's so so thesis-driven, and it is so, like, restricted. It's very... It's almost like a Lars von Trier obstruction movie where he's put these constructs on himself um, with very... uh, He rarely breaks them. He does break them, like, the scene where Jungle Julia and all her friends are killed, and, like, you see all those... Like, close-up shots of, like, the engine, like, busting the person's head and all that. Like, all those special effects you'd never, ever get in a movie. Like, those, he broke it. But other than that, like, it's mostly... Like, he really stuck to it, and it's really good. And then Planet Terror, there's no thesis. There's no—you have no idea what he's going for. It doesn't look like any movie from any era. It doesn't feel like any movie from any era. It's very digitized,
0: though, like all his trickery, I think.
1: Yeah, it looks ugly because of all the digital effects work. It's not a comedy. It, like, it's trying to be everything, and it ends up being nothing. It's kind of fun just because, like— it, there are moments that are genuinely funny, but in general, that movie is just a fucking mess. And it's weird that it got paired with Death Proof, which feels like such a... Yeah. It almost feels like an art project, uh, as opposed Something to... Something like
0: Hobo with a Shotgun might have been better.
1: Uh, yeah, because Hobo with a Shotgun pr- is pretty good at replicating trauma. yeah. Um I mean yeah. Hobo with a shotgun there's a nice
0: contrast from Death Proof but, but at the still. same time
1: that is an entirely different aesthetic and yeah. entirely different tone than but it's the kind of films that it, it in the film it's consistent but right. if you double feature it with Death Proof it still doesn't make much sense because they're just coming from two different eras uh yeah like if Hobo that. with a Shotgun feels more like it would be on a version, like if they made a uh, Grindhouse Two and it was Grindhouse Two, the VHS years, and it was Hobo with a Shotgun and some other film that was Black made. Black Dynamite. To look like, uh, again, Black Dynamite is a Grindhouse film. Black Dynamite might be a yeah. better example, mm-hmm. but I actually don't like Black Dynamite that much. Aww. It tries to be funny a lot, and it's not very funny, and that's that's the that just kills it for me. But it does a very good job of duplicating. I uh, think a lot of era. it is
0: funny. I mean, I, there's definitely some moments where I'm yeah. like I'm yawning. But. So that
1: was Tarantino. I do want to quickly talk about Les Mis though because I saw Les Mis. Oh, I'm still chewing on it.
0: I uh, I, I I'm I'm interested. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I've I'm not too familiar with the play.
1: Oh no, no, the musical. Uh, yeah, it's basically an opera or the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, then you shouldn't see it. Or maybe, I don't know. I do have a curiosity about it just because
0: of the acclaim it's gotten. I know some people have been not too crazy about it. I'd say it.
1: most people haven't been very crazy oh, about okay. it. I, I wouldn't say it's a very acclaimed film mm-hmm. um, outside of certain you know critics or whatever, but in general, it's not a film on the level of Dark, Zero, Dark Thirty, or or, yeah, Link, yeah, or Lincoln, yeah, yeah. or Argo, or other. Well, they're films. they're all just are. saying it's going to get nominations, and well, you know. yeah, but they when you say a film is going to get nominated, you're not actually saying how you feel about the film's quality. You're saying sure. it's the type of film that will be nominated. Yeah, I know. Um, it's the the material is really great. Um, I love the musical. Um, so mm. the fact that it's already and it's mostly the musical. He changes a little bit. A lot of, I've seen people complain about the changes he makes they're not important most of the time they don't really significantly change it um he had to cut some stuff for time and that makes sense and so but he still has the weird angles and stuff the oblique kind of angles I of, don't know what he's doing Tom like you saw the king's speech how did yeah. you feel about the didn't wasn't that the cinematography
0: the... was a little jarring at times I was kind of like why are you shooting that like why is there yeah. so much space between like you know, uh, Colin first. Right. Well, there's like... like there's
1: the photography rule of thirds, yeah. which is you don't want uh, you don't want the subject right in the center of the frame unless you're like Wes Anderson or something. You or you Kubrick. want the center in the yeah, or you want center in the like the first third or the last third. But like he's like operating on like the rule of eighths, where there yeah. are, there are entire songs by of, in this in this uh, movie. Where, like, the main character is only in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen and there's nothing going on the rest of the screen and you don't know what the fuck he's, like, trying to do. It's like an anticipatory setup, you know? Like, you're expecting someone to step in the background, but it just never yeah. happens. like airplane style.
0: <laughs> just like people doing something crazy in the background that you're supposed to keep an eye out for because there's so much wide-open space in the Right, background. right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so... Uh, So his directing style is very weird. It doesn't kill it for me because as a movie, it's already so big and Mm -hmm. so operatic. I mean, it's an opera. It's so fucking operatic that it's – you're not breaking the reality in the way that he broke the reality for me in King's Speech. But at the same time, he shoots the movie almost entirely in close-ups. Like like passion of Joan of Arc or something like it's really weird. It, he has his weird angles, which for every one time that makes a really striking image, there are like three times where it's you don't know why he's doing it and it's really distracting. He has this weird editing style where, like, he'll edit way too much in certain sequences, and then there's certain sequences he doesn't edit at all, and you can't really tell why. Like, it's hard to find a purpose behind any of it. It's not story driven. There are hardly any frames like. There are hardly any shots in which two characters are both on screen talking to each other. It's <laughs> all close up, close up, close up, close up, close up, close up. Interesting. Like, I almost wonder if it was a budgetary thing, like he couldn't he <laughs> couldn't properly recreate like he didn't have the budget to make big sets, so instead of showing the sets, like he he uh, shot people on sound stages with a lot of digital stuff, uh, you know, green screens, and they added it all in the background, and it'd be cheaper that way, but... Yeah, I'm curious, like, watching this
0: and, like, Anna Karenina Karina, <laughs> back-to-back, because I heard that one's also very um, interestingly shot. I mean, I'm I'm actually really excited about Joe Wright, because I think he does really interesting things with the cinematography, huh. whether if it's just, like, crazy um, uh, long shots without any breaks, any cuts. It's also just he's got a lot of energy to his camera work that I think is interesting. Yeah. But I'm like, what would he do with that with you know, I mean, I mean, he didn't really do that too much in Pride and Prejudice, but it was more like atonement. He got really ambitious with the camera.
1: Well, I think I, th- I think as a director, Pride and Prejudice that was what his first feature. Yeah. So he couldn't do as much of that because right. he he wasn't yet a, a proven product and he didn't want to scare I off the producers. I just think in
0: comparison there have been some defenders of uh, both of those films in terms of the, like how uh, inventive they were with I the would, camera work. I would
1: love to hear someone explain to me why the King's Speech and Les Mis are shot as they are, because that makes no sense to me. And if someone would just write something, they'd, like, very calmly going, yeah, this makes sense, because this is the... St-, like... I mean, it's just an odd choice. I think <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. Right, he specifically but he makes a choice for a reason. Yeah. I mean, you don't accidentally shoot a film, right? Like, like, like Tom Hooper shoots a film. He mm-hmm. makes these choices. I just don't know what the fuck he's thinking. Yeah. And
0: but. I think Joe Wright like did something. I haven't like read specifically what he does with Anna Karenina. That's I heard uh, it's very uh, stagey. Like, yeah, play sets are being like erected around the characters and stuff, like in the background, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I don't um, know,
1: but anyway, Les Mis is very is a very strong musical. Like mm-hmm. I said, so it and here okay. Here is the one other thing I want to bring up because I don't want to spend too much time on Les Mis because I already talked about Quentin Tarantino and Kill Bill and all that. But um, I I love. Musicals, you know, I love musicals, but I hate Broadway voices. Um, I really think like there's so little personality in Broadway voices because they're just so technically capable and they're just so powerful and they're so dead on and on key that there's little room for personality outside of you know, obviously, there are exceptions, but like a lot of the times, a lot of Broadway songs just bore the shit out of me. So I, so the idea that these are mostly movie stars who are performing these songs, like a lot of people are like, oh boy, they're going to fuck it up the way they fucked up Sweeney Todd and the way they, uh. like a lot of people with weak voices fuck up Broadway's because they're like, well, I can sing, but yeah, you, you have a rock band, <laughs> but you don't actually sing these songs. Um, I was excited for that. That was actually one of the things that made me more excited about the movie was the fact that. It'd be apparently Tom Hooper's style was he was recording a lot of the singing on live. set. Yeah. yeah, live on set. It was more acting singing as opposed to hmm. Broadway singing. Um, I was wrong. It's real. stagey it, still? It, it's, no, no, no. I was wrong in that to be excited about it because oh, okay. you really need good voices. Um, hmm. uh, Russell Crowe as Javert, as Javert is horrible. I've heard that. He, like... And Hugh Jackman is better, like, because he's not horrible, but it's, like, out of his range or something. Like, he can't hmm. do the songs very well. Um, Anne Hathaway is amazing. Anne Hathaway is the one person who proves, like, who uh, – he goes, oh, like, Tom Hooper, he took this risk. He made this film this way and almost no way it, it, did it pay off. But the one way it did pay off is that Anne Hathaway really does have a voice that sounds like it's struggling and – and, but she's still really powerful and really on key. And her rendition of um, I Dreamed a Dream is like amazing.
0: That's what I keep hearing. Like, right. They're right. all just like but, a close up of her. That's it. Just one yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's one shot. There's a couple songs that are just one shot. Hmm. So it's that, in that way, that, that number uh, is not different. But, but every other way, like Javert is horrible. Russell Crowe is real bad as Javert. And uh, again, Hugh Jackman's just not suited for Jean Valjean. And. Uh, luckily in the second half of the film uh they they cast as Eponine and Marius, like they, they and a couple other characters, they cast actual like Broadway actors. Yeah. So you don't suffer as much, but there are parts it almost feels like an R and B song where like some of the lines they talk and some of the lines they sing, and it like uh like uh at huh. the end of the day, um it, it, like is mostly spoken as dialogue. It's very odd. I mean none of this means anything to you because you don't know the musical very well but um basically it's it's, it's just another choice that feels poor to me um and yet but it was, was it
0: emotionally satisfying for you
1: yeah cuz it's it's fucking lame is okay. that's what i'm saying like the material <laughs> itself yeah. is amazing and i definitely cried during all the Fontaine's descent uh mm. in, in during lovely ladies and i dreamed a dream and it's like that's really powerful that really affected me but it's Les Mis, like, you'd have to fundamentally change it in order for it not to do that to me. Um, So I would say that as far as an adaptation of of Les Miserables, they don't change it so much that it loses all of its power, but it's definitely not very great. Hmm. Um, So I was kind of disappointed by it. Oh. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Like, I don't know, has Les Mis been adapted a lot? into other The book!
1: yeah, the book's been adapted a couple of times in a film. A, okay. This is the first musical. I see An adaptation.
0: Because uh, we had also an adaptation of Wuthering Heights this year, an adaptation of Anna Karenina. Yeah,
1: this is different. The book, yeah. the book is much more like the musical. Like sort of runs through the book very briskly. Oh, okay. Um, the book is a lot more dense, and the musical itself, for a musical, is incredibly dense. But it's not. It's not anything approaching the level of the book. The book. Uh, the, the book itself is just sprawling and epic and has so many characters and so many backstories and they all tie into each other in meaningful ways. Whereas the musical, it's mostly about Jean Valjean, the through line of him huh. and about all the people he touches. So okay, if, you, if this is the first way you experience it, I will say the way that Tom Hooper has added scenes where there is dialogue. And by the way, I called it way back when they first announced it that there's no way there – because in the musical, there's no talking. In the musical, it's all singing, all all uh, exposition, everything is all done singing. It's oh, opera. wow. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's unique.
1: Um, and it's I playing knew... in Chicago, isn't it? Or yeah. it was. Mm-hmm. And hmm. I knew that he would not do it um, that way. I knew there's no way they'd release a film version like that. Because the story is – if you're not acquainted with the story, it's actually kind of hard to follow huh. uh, if the first, your first time seeing it um, as a musical. So um, – it, honestly, as a first time experiencing it, it might not be a bad way to experience it because you'll definitely get the story better. Sure. Um, uh, and of course, there's just the limitations of how many scenes you can have in, on stage. Uh, but I just want to see his weird camera shots. <laughs> no, you don't. No, <laughs> that's the worst part. Just, it's, it's they're yeah. really going to bother you. Oh, I just yeah, I don't get it. And the and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and oh, uh, nice. and uh, uh, he's
0: one of the better parts of Sweeney Todd.
1: No, he's not very good in this. Um, and Helena Bonham Carter. They're both not very good. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, I mean, it's not well, bad because it's still recognizably Les Mis, and I fucking love Les Mis. Mm-hmm. And I imagine if I was a Broadway snob, like, it would really bother me, all the voices. But as is, it only kind of bothers me. And But everything Tom Hooper does is really bothering me. <laughs> that's, that's really what uh, annoyed me.
0: Yeah. I, 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 again, I didn't... I found King's Speech to be pretty satisfying as a story and the acting was really good. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I liked it. But again, there's there's definitely just some weird moments of that where I'm like, wow, why does it frame that way? Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, and, and I every just, once in a while it does pay off like there are like sure. striking I'm not images saying it's in all this film and King's Speech at, where it's like I don't know why it's framed like this, but it looks beautiful, but sure. then there's a lot of times where it's just distracting and it just takes you out of the movie, yeah,
0: definitely so uh well, yeah i feel, I feel like it's interesting because' we're, you know you, you talk about musicals in general that's another genre i am i I've, I've seen you singing in the rain mm-hmm. you know and there's I feel like that's a, a whole other realm for me to explore because whenever I do watch a musical, I'm kind of uh jubilant <laughs> throughout. Yeah. Well, I'm, if it's something you
1: like, and this is, this is for people. I think film fans in general tend to over. I think it might it might even be the Tarantino influence. They tend to uh, film fans in general, at least the ones on the internet, they tend yeah. to over favor genre movies and anything that's on Criterion, and they tend to overlook American uh, musicals because sure. because they so maybe it's because they. Uh, because they so idolize the new Hollywood dynamic that that killed off the Hollywood musical that they they don't go back and watch see what made those musicals great. But if you like those, like definitely uh, check out you know any Gene Kelly musicals. Sure, yeah, um, yeah like you can do it by star. Um, you know,
0: definitely uh, I want to see some more Judy Garland because I yeah. only know her from Wizard of Oz. To be
1: honest, oh, so you haven't seen uh, Meet Me in St. Louis? Nope. Okay, I'm, I'll make you a list. Please I'll do. make you a list. Meet me in St. Louis. Uh, I will. I and will. I got, it's a long drive, but
0: I'm willing to meet you there if you yeah, want no, to give me the list. Me, and,
1: no, no, no. for real though. Vincent Minnelli, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis is a very odd, like oddly structured film in which there's no one plot. It's just following a family over the course of a year, um, in and it, like it's very seasonal. Where that's where Judy Garland's rendition of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas comes oh. from. There's a really fun uh, like. Uh, Halloween vignette Like there's a lot And it's That's cool So you Okay so you, Real quick Meet Me in St. Louis Summer Stock um, And A Star is Born Are like oh. the three Judy Garland movies That you must Must see Okay And then um, For Gene Kelly You want An American in Paris You want Singing in the Rain Yeah I've seen that Everybody's yeah. seen that uh, <laughs> I hope You want uh, No he wasn't Easter Parade is Fred Astaire Though Fred Astaire And Ginger oh. Rogers movies Are a whole other
0: Yeah Ball
1: game, but uh,
0: yeah, like some yeah, it's, are- it's it's silly. I mean, I f- I feel like I agree with you to some degree. With
1: I understand if people don't like musicals because they are very they they only. Like, it's not like there are musicals that do rock music. Like rock operas are generally just fucking horrible. 'Cause they're not they're not good examples of mu- of like Broadway show tunes and they're not good examples of rock. Right. <laughs> like they're just really gross in between. I'm just gonna put on Phantom of the Paradise for the Yeah, 20th there's time. Phantom of the Paradise, there's Jesus Christ superstar. There yep. are exceptions, but mostly most rock operas are horrible. And if you don't like show tunes, then most musicals like the the whole attraction of them is gonna be lost on you. Um so it's uh so but if you do like musicals you've seen, you know, Just fucking man up. Don't feel insecure (laughs) in your masculinity and be like, oh, I don't know. That's definitely not me. I guess I love – I feel very secure. Like, oh, I don't want to see people dancing. I don't – Oh, American and Paris. Like, no, no, fuck you. I want to see people dancing.
0: Absolutely. Singing and dancing and enjoying life. Yeah. It's beautiful. Musicals are great. Yeah.
1: Um, late miz is not singing and dancing and mm-hmm. enjoying life in fact i like chicago when it came out i don't know if yeah, it, it I hate would hold chicago. up yeah. chicago is shot like a music video it's not the same yeah yeah you got to shoot it i mean we're going to be talking about this may be a good transition point for buster keaton i agree because if you're going to talk a- about a musical you're going to mm-hmm. talk about people dancing you want to see them dance you don't want the you don't want the editing to do the dancing for you you don't want sure. the avid to dance you want the people to dance and all of those really great uh, Gene Kelly musicals and and stuff where he's and Fred Astaire musicals it's all one shot and it's all full body you see their whole full body frame, you see the whole everything in one yeah that's yeah great. absolutely and that's important and most musicals don't do that now um, though I have heard that the Step Up movies um, are actually very good at that are very good at shooting musicals um, Colin, like shooting musical numbers Colin is a fan yeah he's a legitimate fan of those movies. So I mean it's a different kind of dancing, but and, and if you like Jackie Chan movies, again tie into Buster <gasps> oh, Keaton. I if, do. You like, if you like Jackie Chan movies, Gene Kelly's dancing is very like G- Gene Kelly loves to use props. He love like he like the way he moves his body is very odd. It's not just like I under I love you know Fred Astaire. I love movies like Top Hat and stuff. But like I understand if you watch um if you watch like a Fred Astaire movie and there and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers are just ballroom dancing, and it's not as exciting <laughs> for you. But, like, Gene Kelly's dancing is very acrobatic and yeah. very exciting in the way that, you know, the two primary influences on Jackie Chan are Buster Keaton and Gene, and Gene Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. yeah, Not just so, Bruce
0: Lee. Yeah. If, I, <laughs> you know?
1: if, if I have to evangelize one thing to people, it would be to fucking man up and watch musicals because they're great.
0: I I I would agree based on the few that I've seen. Yeah, and that's the thing is like I think both Buster Keaton and the musical genre are things that put me in a wonderful mood, and I need to watch more. Of them. I
1: uh, I got I got a uh, I got a gift card for Amazon for Christmas. Nice, and I ordered a nine uh, Busby Berkeley film set. So that's that's another like, one. Yeah, yeah I'd buzz- love to see that. Uh, oh stuff, yeah, yeah. Stuff too. The Gold Diggers movies are really fun. Right, uh, you for, mentioned that when you saw it. Wanted the music. Box. Right, exactly. I'm really yeah. excited to revisit that. Um yeah, cuz musicals are pure cinema. Like mm-hmm. they're just you can't do singing and dancing and sound and movement without either a film camera or a or a stage. Sure. You know, you can't read a musical. You can't you you can't look at a musical. You can't there's there aren't musical comic books. You either have to have a camera or you have to have the stage. Yeah. Oh, and Vincent Menelli's The Pirate. There's another Judy Garland Gene Kelly collaboration. That's one. Wow. Of them. Best of both worlds. Yeah. Nice. They're both in Summerstock as well. The other good thing about Gene Kelly is that he's a very funny performer. Like he's a genuinely oh, yeah. funny man. So
0: I would agree based on Singing in the Rain. Yeah, he's really
1: funny in The Pirate. Um, he's kind of funny in Summerstock. Uh, Summerstock, it's more the numbers than the plot but there are some the best musicals like the Gold Diggers uh, series and stuff like you are really good co- like screwball comedies and then when the music numbers come they're really good musicals oh, so
0: nice. anyway
1: blah blah blah, blah, blah 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 very good
0: Patrick yeah very good
1: I think we're ready to talk
0: about the director of the episode though mm-hmm yeah Buster Keaton Buster Keaton, Keaton. <laughs> Buster Keaton that's the man Buster a guy who came from vaudeville, a silent star just like a buckle. With a blank expression upon his face, he's hopping and bustin' all over the place. It's a legend, Luster Keaton. That you thought I'd say Liam Neeson. Sure, you could just watch Charlie Chap. But Sherlock Jr. is where it's at. He's the stunt man with the vision. Crash and smash with such precision. Neighbors and cops. One week college, seven chances The haunted house and holy shit He falls and flips, gets chased by chicks, He takes his place, Buster Keaton Can do it all, if you don't believe me Watch the general He's Buster Keaton He's Buster Keaton He's Buster Keaton He's Buster Keaton, yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh. Buster Keaton was born Joseph Frank Keaton into a vaudeville family. Keaton claimed he was having so much fun that he would sometimes begin laughing as his father threw him across the stage. Noticing that this drew fewer laughs from the audience, he decided to adopt his famous deadpan expression whenever he was working. Then in 1917, Keaton met Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle at the studios in New York City. During his first meeting with Arbuckle, he asked to borrow one of the cameras to get a feel for how it worked. He took the camera back to his hotel room, dismantled, and reassembled it. With this rough understanding of the mechanics of the moving pictures, he returned the next day, camera in hand, asking for work. Then after his successful run with Arbuckle, Schenk gave him his own production unit. Buster Keaton comedies! He made a series of two real comedies, including One Week, The Playhouse, Cops, and The Electric House. Keaton then moved on to full-length features, his first starring role being in The Saphead. But then, it went on to make some extraordinary pictures, including Sherlock Jr., Our Hospitality, The Navigator, and of course, the two films we're about to discuss, Seven Chances and The General. We got a voicemail.
1: Ooh, let's hear it!
2: Hello, Jim and Patrick. This is Robert Brineke from wherethelongtailends.com. I just want to say how pleased I am that you guys are tackling Buster Keaton. Uh, Always been a favorite of mine. Uh, uh, In the eternal debate between Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, I'm squarely on uh, Team Buster. Uh, What I find really fascinating about Buster Keaton is how much he was able to recognize the possibilities of film and his filmmaking so they're not only funny that they they they're real innovative in the way that they explore what a camera can do he doesn't necessarily just record the gags although the gags he records are flat-out funny but he's also able to uh use the medium itself to construct the gags um i can't see how the journal would work without the magic of editing uh, as the camera moves across the countryside, of course, you, you have all the gags in Sherlock uh, Jr., um, the mayhem of Steamboat Bill Jr., and goes on and on and on. I mean, it, it, you did, he's not just a great comedy uh, actor and director, he's a great action director, and I think that's uh, one of the, the his real achievements that uh, always makes his films a pleasure to watch even today. I, I think he's definitely the forerunner of people like uh, Jack Chan I also think it's uh, uh, his persona the great stone face of his stoicism in the face of all the mayhem that he shows on the that he throws on the street has aged incredibly well um, he's not really asking for your sympathy but we give it to him anyways and I think that's a, a, a great tr- trick that uh, still speaks uh, well for him Um so I'm looking forward to hear what you have to say, and uh, I, I'm sure it'll be a fun podcast. Thanks.
0: It's been fun so far. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thanks.
1: I um, really appreciate that voice. I, I do want to – yeah, I'm glad you brought this up just so I can get it out of the way. Um, I definitely like Keaton more than Chaplin, and I feel I almost too often bring up Chaplin mm-hmm. when talking about why I love Buster Keaton. The fact is, I haven't seen a lot of Chaplin films. Same here. I like City Lights fine, and yeah. uh, I tried watching uh, The Gold, Gold Rush. Rush. Yeah, I started watching The Gold Rush, and I got like 30 minutes in, and, uh, and whatever. I'm not a fan of Charlie Chaplin, suffice to say, but I also don't know enough about him to... Would you
0: say he over-emotes with his face? Um, times? That's, that's my opinion, but sympathy? again, I'm
1: just not... I don't feel comfortable talking about him. He's too important, yeah. and he's too big and I've seen too little of them to make it have a real proper opinion. But I just want to just Preface. to get, get it that out of the way. Yeah. Um, Neither of us are chaplain experts and
0: uh, I'm, I'm going to see the great da
1: the great dictator
0: at some point. I'm very curious about that. I would hope so. I will. Yeah, I will. Let me go first a little bit here because I'm a newbie. To uh, to Buster Keaton, I only have I only watched Sherlock Jr. like a few months ago and was completely blindsided. And that was, was the
1: first time you'd ever seen a Buster Keaton movie. Yes, it was.
0: Wow, I know. <laughs> it's one of those uh, you know uh, lapses in my. Uh, film, I, I mean, film we, watching we, were, we were talking
1: about musicals. I think there is a hesitation just for um, it's easy to watch every classic movie that came out of the seventies because that's sort of the vernacular that mm-hmm. created modern. You know modern film grammar, but it is a, it is a leap to to watch usually a leap at least to watch silent films. So right, it makes sense I, that you hesitate, and I think a lot of people may hesitate. They think, oh yeah, comedy back then was so it's so dated now. It's it's so broad and it was so different. There's it's all no the way Three Stooges. The, and, yeah, like they know. they see the Three Stooges and right.
0: But I I I was like rarely does he break expression as he's like tumbling down you know mountainsides and like all these things that he's embarking on I'm shocked every single time at how he does it effortlessly and well, that, yet doesn't and break
1: emotion. That is why you identify with him yeah. is because what that depicts isn't that he doesn't care. It's, mm-hmm. It depicts that he is determined, and that determination is what yeah. is so endearing about the Buster Keaton character, which is basically the same character from movie to movie, um, the same way Charlie Chaplin, the same way a lot of comedians, they create a single character and they just put, put them in different scenarios. Right. The Buster Keaton character is defined by his determination and and – His optimism, there are a lot of points and a lot of films where he would just give – where a normal person would just give up. I mean obviously we'll talk more about the general, but – we'll talk more about that with the general. But like – um, and that's why you can watch – like if just – if I just told you, oh, I saw a movie the other day in where a guy asks out 15 girls and it's just – it's the whole – like half of the film is him being rejected – Like, you'd go, oh, that sounds horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that sounds just crippling and, like, sad. No, because it's Buster Keaton, and he's determined... And I mean, also the, the the concept they set up in which he has to get married in order to win seven million dollars, which he always by the... has to impress a girl in some way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. you need a you need an object like I a premise. That I you mean, can... you're talking about seven chances. Another thing to get out of the way, real quick, as far as this and partially the general, but more of this film is that these films are products of their times. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> yeah, are they ever? They are. There's a lot of things that are very offensive in these. Um, movies there's blackface he black I mean he comes from the vaudeville sure he comes from vaudeville where you know blackface was was just a thing you did and no one thought to you know no one says otherwise and you're just gonna and you're gonna make a movie in 1925 no one's going to hem and haw about blackface yeah or him um, re-
0: completely rejecting a, a black woman as a potential well steward.
1: honestly that to me is like legally he could not marry a black woman I don't think in 1925 like that right that, yeah, that no, moment that, makes that sense. moment where he like goes to ask a girl to marry him and he finds out she's black and he walks away that, right, right, right. that to me is just like well that can't work but whereas opposed to the scene right before it where he sees a Jew <laughs> like he goes to ask a, he's about to ask a woman reading a newspaper mm-hmm. and then he sees the newspapers all in Hebrew and he goes oh never mind like yeah. that yeah that is racist and the blackface and the whole depiction of women in this film is as some sort of weird uh gold digging hive mind yeah uh is very <laughs> racist like i not racist misogynist. Uh, yeah misogynist yeah and that is something that you have to sort of deal with when watching these films a lot of things are just obstacles for him to overcome and it could be like but ob- and yeah that brings back I'm sorry, uh, but that, that my my po- my original point was uh, that's why like all the women in his films have no character. They're yeah. just they're just objects of affection, and they're just motivating like factors. Yeah, everything is kind of in flux with him because
0: you know uh, the women could be almost just like the boulders in a way, just like they all rushing towards him. And mm-hmm. that that final sequence alone was just like how oh, that's just. I mean his his acrobatic abilities yeah. are
1: astonishing. I mean, a, uh, it's it's Buster Keaton as a regular Renaissance man. Yeah, yeah it, absolutely. He's he wrote these films. He directed these films. He did his stunts. Um, I don't think anyone else has any stunts in this film. But on other films, he doubled for other people doing their Jeez. stunts. <laughs> Couldn't help himself. Yeah. No. So Buster Keaton's amazing. I mean, he's also. Uh, the reason that whole sequence is so great is because it is such a funny inversion of what came before of a million rejections of watching a man get turned down yeah. of chasing women around for 30 minutes and then all the women start to chase him like that like it's so preposterous and he he loves creating, you know, he loves creating these ideas and he's very left-brained in a way where he designs these sequences like an engineer. Um, but but his sort of chief goal is is to make these very surreal sort surreal. of moments, yeah. yeah. Like fill the screen, like have 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 him walking down the street, and then just slowly fill the entire background behind him with with brides. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I also just like he he seems like he's just a an observer through all of this. Like and and there's no song and no dance, no sentimentality. Uh, you know, I again, I mean, we'll talk more about some of his other things, but the, only Buster Keaton can turn, like, this, you know, a house into a merry-go-round. And that's, like, I feel like that's how he approaches a lot of things in general. He's like, well, how can I make this fun and exciting and, and energetic and just grab the audience in a way and take something like a house and just, you know, make it a life onto its own? He's really interested in, you know, in inanimate objects... As becoming something more. And I think that's really great. Even if there are obstacles for him to overcome. I think what he provides is like this really incredible timing. And this inspired like sense of space amongst everything.
1: The sense of space is probably my favorite thing going back and watching all these movies. Um, There are no films in the silent era or otherwise that are shot like Buster Keaton films. Oh no. Like... The I mean part of it is just silent films. The vernacular was you shot it like a stage play with intermittent close ups and stuff. Um, I would say none of Buster Keaton's films fa- feel like a stage play, but the, the, but yes, the camera is going to be more pulled back in silent films. They're mm-hmm. not, it's not going to be as close up. It's not going to be a Tom Hooper shooting Lamez. Sure, all. unless I mean I when I was talking about Miz, I brought up the Passion of Joan Arc, jo- mm-hmm. uh, Joan of Arc, which is all. Like close ups, and and that's the point. But other than that, it's going to be the camera's going to be farther back. But can But Keaton pulls the camera way back. Oh yeah, like so you Keaton can see the whole will be a little space. speck um, because yeah, he has a mind. He has a mind where he's just building these devices for comedy. Yeah, um, he's just and he wants to show it off the whole
0: entire frame, and that's yeah. what's great. Well, like, and it's and he so just, many moments involving houses like collapsing onto him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well I I think it's almost uh, it's it was the freedom it's I think there are a lot of people who they grew up and they grew up or they grew up as performers doing vaudeville so when they moved to the to the cinema they just did vaudeville in front of a camera. Yeah. You know, like there's like Laurel and Hardy who are great, like a lot of their stuff like Marx brothers who are great. None of their stuff feels intrinsic to to film. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but Buster Keaton, I think the fact that he could do anything. Apparently, what happened was uh, he met Fatty Arbuckle, right? Uh, and uh, he was sort of inspired by him. And he has to borrow—I don't—I don't know if it's Fatty Arbuckle's camera, but someone involved in his sort of company's camera. And he borrowed it, and he took it apart and got it back together, and he sort of figured out himself how it worked. And like, I think just something clicked in his head, and it was just freedom instead sure. of having to. Like no, you don't like. He he was dragging everybody else to realize we can do anything. We we have so much freedom uh, and the world is our playground, right. basically. But so 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 the chase scene he constructs is so great and it's so daring. And he but it feels really organic. It feels like it's
0: happening. I'm sure he planned it out. But still. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he just kind (laughs) of winged
1: it. Yeah, he's just, oh, good, there's a crane there. I'll use that. No, of course he planned it out meticulously. Yeah. But Uh, I
0: just, I I mean, if you want to go way back, what really started him off, I think, was the fact that like he tumbled down a flight
1: of stairs when he was like ten. Years oh yeah, old well or as something. a performer, as a yeah. not as a filmmaker, but as a performer, right. yeah, he just very early on, his family's act was his dad would throw him, yeah, like into scenery, into the crowd, into the orchestra pit, and he just and get he'd right just back up. up, yeah, yeah, and he says, oh, it's just a matter of learning to relax your body and breaking your fall with your hand or something like, mm-hmm. um, and that's so Buster Keaton, yeah, he learned. That is that's purportedly where he got his nickname um, from. That fall down the stairs when he was little, right, um, and stuff. But I mean, as a filmmaker, I think it was the op- I think it was the opposite. I think it was being introduced to a camera sort of mi- started his mind thinking in other ways. You watch like uh, One Week, which is one of his very first short films. Masterpiece, I yeah. loved it. One Week is one of my favorite uh, favorite films ever made. Um, yeah. But you watch that, like, he's already completely... This is 1920, so this is maybe his second film he ever did. I think his first was maybe Convict 13. Mm. or That might be his first short. Uh, other than, like, starring in a couple, like, Fatty Arbuckle, like, shorts and stuff. Like, he's already thinking about the big picture. He's already pulling the camera back, thinking about... And the big house. Yeah, the, the house. <laughs> and seeing how this house can turn around, and seeing how people can run around in this house, and seeing how... Uh, how uh railing can become a ladder and how a window can can become a fall on him and
0: and, yeah and like just seeing how the once the the storm hits and everything i mean just he he defies gravity (laughs) in so many instances that it's kind of breathtaking to
1: watch absolutely and um but one of the things that's and that's that's buster keaton the director but one of the things that makes Seven Chances so amazing is the first half of the movie, there's no, like, I think know. there's one pratfall. Right. Buster Keaton, the performer, is incredible. And mm-hmm. apparently, Seven Chances is his least favorite film. And sort of like Woody Allen in Manhattan, he requested it be destroyed. Oh, um, interesting. Once he got into a certain level of fame because he hated it so much. And I think that's because it's based off of a com- uh, comedic play. And that whole first half of the film, I don't know if Buster Keaton wrote a lot of that. I think a lot of that's – like you could feel a lot of that being from a stage play. Um, Sure. It's it's a lot of verbal – setup. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of verbal stuff. It mostly takes place in one space with people coming in and out of the set and stuff. But his performance is so good. And again – the less he reacts to the constant mounting rejection, the funnier it gets. And it just gets so more and more absurd. And he, of course he comes up with all sorts of great reasons and all crazy different kinds of women that he proposed to and why there are weird choices. And, um, but like, it's all in his face, that whole first half of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, and the fact that that, most of his films anytime he's not doing anytime there isn't a set piece it kind of drags uh, like you haven't seen yeah. a lot of his features this is less a problem with a short film because the short films are only I like... will
0: say the navigator as astonishing as it gets there there's some
1: lulls in yeah, there yeah absolutely navigator steamboat uh steamboat bill junior is a very famous film with the most famous sequence of the of the side of the house falling on him and him going yeah. through the the window but steamboat bill junior is you know, has a lot of drags in it. I actually say I prefer – generally I prefer his short films mm-hmm. to his features for that reason. But this is one of the only features where um even in the parts where there's not a big set piece, it's just the pacing is incredible. Right. Um, I Um And he does some great things with that. Like he sets up the film in the first seven minutes and the way he – like for example, how do you set up – a a a, real, a whole lifetime of f- loving someone and not saying anything. And he has that great sequence in the beginning of Seven <laughs> Chances. One of my yeah. favorite keep-changes seasons. whereas all the seasons are changing and the yeah. dog keeps growing. Yeah. That's so which cute. originally, that sequence was shot in an early form of Technicolor. I don't know huh. if the version you saw It has,
0: like, a sepia-toned version of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But
1: they're, unlike the, I think, the special edition Kino version, there's, like, a Technicolor. But, Hmm. uh, like, again, we'll talk about later, he has a very high interest in technology as well. Oh, yeah. And the camera, but... Man versus machine. And there's a, like, there's a great moment where... Where he's driving to his his beloved's house to propose to her for the first time, he jumps in his car and then the and then he doesn't move, but the rest of but it does a dissolve and the rest of the scenery fades away to her house and he just jumps uh-huh. out of his car, like stuff like that is just it's not the sort of thing that any com- general comedian would be thinking about because a comedian's just thinking how do I get to the next laugh, but Keaton has just such imagination and like Such so a even rhythm to yeah, it yeah even moments like that where it's just him traveling in a car like he finds a way to make it interesting and fun and uh do it differently yeah he's he's the sort of the master too,
0: of the misunderstanding of like that scene where uh um he, he he's very close to getting a girl to propose cuz she's like oh I do want to get married yeah. but then she looks and sees his uh, his uh, older friend like he, he's supposed to be sat, standing in, oh, in yeah. view of the girl and I, way, that I, comedy is... as a result of misunderstanding
1: usually works in in a Buster Keaton world. By the way, that well, I mean that's that's comedy in general. Sure. It, uh, uh from that era is is that but that's Snitz Edwards is the name mm-hmm. of that actor. Um he's a great yeah. he's a great uh, film actor um and he has like such an amazing face. And right. There are a couple moments where it just does a close up on his face. And again, that's Keaton like allowing him to get the laugh um, in the battling Butler, the which is a, another Keaton feature that I'm not a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. That um, like he actually uh, he actually uh, sort of outdoes Buster Keaton. He's the funniest part of that movie as his as his sort of Butler, but. And a lot of his films, even his short
0: films, climax with a run for his life, yeah. kind of scenario. Because it's just breathless. so,
1: because it's so beautiful and visual, and the kind of thing that you can't accomplish oh, yeah. anywhere but film. You right. can't do a chase, a Buster Keaton chase scene anywhere but film. Like Robert Reineke said, you can't do the, you can't do anything in the general on stage. In a book, it wouldn't be the same thing. Uh, in a comic book, it definitely wouldn't be the no. same thing. It's, on a podcast, only, it would be yeah, terrible. There's only one medium in which you can do a, a Buster Keaton chase scene, and that's on film. And the the other great thing about Buster Keaton is uh, he I, – I mean I, I'm not as well-versed in silent film as, as, as maybe other eras of film, but he has more tracking shots yeah. than I've seen in – than I see from any other filmmaker uh, of that era. Like mm-hmm. in 1925, the amount of tracking shots in this – and it's probably just a necessity of we need to show someone running and we need to show their face – but if, sure. but if we show the full length of their run, we're not going to see their face. So what do we do? Oh, we have the camera follow them. But that gives the the second half of this film the chase so much fucking energy. Yeah. Because the camera is constantly moving and constantly going. Like anytime there's someone's driving a car, it's just constantly following the car. And part of it is just he under, you know, the way any uh, silent film acrobatics go is that he's under cranked. So it looks a lot faster than it actually is. But and at the same time it's like it, it does have that
0: sort of uh, manic energy of something like a like a cartoon, but without ever becoming cartoonish, especially because of his facial expressions. Well,
1: I, I mean, I, and I would think a lot of the cartoons that you're probably referencing came yeah. after Buster Keaton and were referencing Buster Keaton. I'm oh, yeah. Pretty sure I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that. Most Merry Melodies comes like you know, like they are Merry Melodies is not shy about being inspired by, you know, films comedies of before mm-hmm. and uh, so, yeah, it's it's like a cartoon because it, it's what inspired cartoons. The same thing yeah. that sort of Joe Dante feels like Looney Tunes, like Looney Tunes feels like Buster Custer Keaton. Pro-
0: yeah, definitely. And Jackie Chan. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. I See, mean, I mean, that's funny because, like, I saw Jackie Chan. I saw Rumble in the Bronx and Supercop. I saw all those movies in the theater. Not once knowing, like oh, well, this is clearly, like, his biggest influence.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah the acrobatics, like, the stuff I, with the I, ladders, you know? Oh, yeah, seems. ladder, he loves props, yeah. like, the same way Jackie Chan does. Uh, he loves creating devices. Uh, he has a short film called The Electric House, which basically just, uh, it's oh, yeah, about him turning a house into, like, the, uh, a series of obstacles and traps and stuff, which, mm-hmm. of course, all will pay off later. Like, all this stuff, and I actually came about the other way, where I was... Where I, I I loved Buster Keaton, and then I watched uh, the first Drunken Master movie, not the not the one, oh, that, okay, not the Miramax one, the Legend of Drunken Master. But yeah, no, I think it was, I think one's called Drunken Master two, and one's called Legend of Drunken Master. Anyway, the first one, and I was like, oh shit, he's doing Buster Keaton, even though the stunts in that film aren't as big as like this later, uh, like super cop kind of movies mm-hmm. he'd be doing or Rumble in the Bronx or anything like. It's very clearly buster keaton, and um so there's that i uh I love the again, I think it's just i think the whole reason it works is because his steely determination is because right. he's so single minded uh well all the all of this goal oriented
0: oriented yes. you know it's like i mean he's he's motivated and sort of structured through like the logic of causality, and everything's kind of resolved by the end which is always like thank god you know like after all that something very positive tends to happen at the end for, for buster well it's a
1: comedy They're yeah. not gonna, i know <laughs> he's not going to be subversive and like um, but i think i think that's why i tend to like his short films more than his features because his features he has to actually tell a story Often, and, I mean, the two features... can can bog down a little bit. The two features were... I mean, Seven Chances is less than an hour long. Mm -hmm. It's it's barely longer than Sherlock Jr., and Sherlock Jr., I don't think, ever gets included as one of his features. Um, I think Sherlock... So, it's almost a short film, Seven Chances. Mm -hmm. Um, But because he's so determined, and because he's so single-minded, like, he even subverts that. Like, there are parts in the second half of the film... Which, and we're not exaggerating. The second half of the film is a chase scene. It's a 20 minute chase scene. Um, Though, like, there are parts where he's not running from anyone. Like, just the momentum of him running is leading Mm -hmm. to him running. And he's doing amazing things like jumping off a cliff onto a tree. And I mean, the tree falls, when there's a cut and the tree falls down, and it's clearly a dummy attached to the tree. But he jumped onto that tree. You can't fake that. There's no special effects. Other than the very clear, like there are some special effects in Buster Keat movies, but you can always tell where they are because it's mm-hmm. they weren't sophisticated enough to ever mask them.
0: Was it our hospitality where you, that incredible moment? It's like one of the best, amazing things I've seen in in a movie. I want to say it's our hospitality. where they're on the waterfall yes. and the and the line breaks yes. and he just swing Yeah, I assume kinda... that she that it was a dummy for her <laughs> falling off the waterfall. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> but still. Yeah, yeah. It's just a marvel to see something like that pulled off. And it
1: was just, like, in the fucking 20s, they yeah. didn't – in the 20s, it was sort of the Wild West and people were all contr- – like, the uh, the other thing I want to say real quick is Seven Chances is directed solely by Buster Keaton, but a lot of his mm-hmm. films were not. A lot of yeah, films they were, were co-directed. co-directed by Edward Klein, who you probably know better as he – well, maybe you know him better, depending on how how much of a comedy nerd you are, like I am. He directed a lot of W.C. Fields' later films, like mm-hmm. The Bank Dick and Never Give a Sucker an Even Break and stuff like that. Ooh, The Bank Dick. That sounds hot. Yeah. It's really – it's a great W.C. porno. W.C. Fields' <laughs> porno. There's a, there's a couple W.C. Field porno that aren't as good, but The Bank Dick is just superb. Yeah. His,
0: the Birth of a Nation isn't very erotic.
1: It depends who you are, Jim. <laughs> I find placenta very erotic. But, um, yeah, but, like, uh, but we should mention, in all, most of his films, there are other writers. It was yeah. sort of this Wild West where everyone was contributing gags and everyone was stealing gags. Can't um, help but acknowledge Clyde Bruckman,
0: for God's sake, and a name that I only knew from an X-Files episode. Yeah. Probably my favorite X-Files
1: I episode. never made that connection. Neither did I. I think my, when, I, when I knew who Clyde Bruckman, who co-directed The General, was, mm-hmm. I don't think I was into The X-Files. And When I was into The X-Files, I think it had been too long since I was really into Buster Keaton. But yeah. yeah. That's the first thing I noticed when I saw Cl- sure, Clyde like, Bruckman's actually a perfect example of this. Clyde Bruckman is a guy, he, other than co-directing The General, uh, he, he, you know, he contributed a lot of writing to a lot of films. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also kept stealing Abbott and Costello and Buster Keaton bits for every TV job he was ever hired for in the 50s. Oh, wow. Like, apparently he kept getting sued and he ended up dying penniless. And it's, it's kind <laughs> of sad. It's kind of sad, but at the same time, it's like, all right, fucking stop stealing everyone's bits. He was relentless with that shit. Um, so Clyde Bruckman's kind of interesting. But my point is, it was this Wild West where... Like no studio is going to allow an actor to do these crazy shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we're talking about more with the general. I think the general is a lot crazier, even. But there, you know, no studio is going to give a thumbs up to most of that. Oh, I agree. Um, but because he was just sort of out on his own, and he's just had these crazy ideas, and he goes, uh, "I can do that." Because like Buster Keaton was that kind of guy, even in the like '60s when he'd be on TV, he goes, he'd like say, well, what if I did a bit where I'm climbing on a fire hose and I fall down, like, six feet and I tumble on the ground, on the stage? You're like, you're 65. No, you're not <laughs> going to let you do that. He goes, I can do that. I've done it all my life. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, Buster Keaton is the kind of guy where, like, putting himself in harm's way, like, like Jackie oh, Chan, sure. is just... It's just no brainer to him. He goes, "Well, yeah," because that's that's what makes it great, right? (laughs) Otherwise, why are we doing entertaining? That's why why are we doing this? That's why our jaws are on the floor half the time. So it's just a. I think it's his career is just a, just sort of this happy, wonderful mix of the right guy and the right place and the right time. Yeah, Um, and he actually pulled this stuff off. Like, uh, I I want to move on to the general. I think the general could potentially be a film that we hear about like one of those films that never got off the ground because like, there's so many places in this film where uh, Buster Keaton could have died, where... <laughs>
0: where... I, I felt like I had to readjust my expectations a little bit because I was hearing this is one of the greatest laugh-out-loud comedies of all time.
1: Really? No, yeah. it's not that. No, it's, it's not. An action, it's an action comedy. Yes. It's an action movie, and it is exciting in a way that very few action movies of any era are. Oh, like, I know. But it is, it is
0: more breathless than unstoppable.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and more unstoppable than breathless. Very good. <laughs> uh,
0: but it seems like he's really focused, especially on the most of the things I saw. Where it's like these simple tasks or these, you know, domesticated issues or something. He, it's definitely man versus machine, but the malfunctioning of apparatuses. This I, I that really happens a well, lot. I would. Say,
1: I would. I would. I'd have to disagree. I almost think it's man with machine. I think yeah. none of the thing because none of the things his characters do, like, none of the things he does in the... One of the interesting things about the General is a lot of his film, like, the first film he ever made was The Saphead. He is and that's working about, with the train pretty effective, right? And But the first film he ever made, The Saphead, the first feature <laughs> film, I should say, the saphead he's this rich boy um who who has no idea how the world works and he's sent off and he's clueless and it's mm-hmm. all it's very self-deprecating and it's all he's a he's the butt of the joke and right. there are a lot of films where he's an incompetent fool who stumbles into these crazy scenarios where he has to be crazy the general his character is defined by how competent he is yeah like his character isn't defined like his character is defined by his determination and the fact that he's a really fucking great conductor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, in, it's a comedy. He wasn't meant to be a soldier. He's just a sort of <laughs> Yeah. For, that's for sure. He's too valuable as a conductor, so yeah. he gets turned down to join... By the way, It's another, all spelled out by that guy at that moment. Another example of the offensiveness of the era is that, like, the, the big proud glory moment is that we're rooting for the South to defeat the North. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, which is, I mean... If, if you're making a film about a war, the losing side is always going to be more romantic, yeah. just because it's it's more dramatic. But so there are a lot of there are a lot of films about the Civil War that take place from a Southern perspective that aren't necessarily that while they don't necessarily apologize uh, for for slavery, they're also not about that. Mm-hmm. Like the the issue of slavery, or whatever, is never brought up. Um,
0: yeah, and I, at first I was I was like are we going to have like a moment to breathe and you know nope. we No. That I mean but it's like he, I I thought it was going to be like nothing but a train chase picture for and it is for the, for the majority of it. But still like he has a time to, you know, um hop off the train and get uh and lost in not necessarily lost in the woods, but he winds up in that house. And everything. Well, it's
1: it's structured like Seven Chances. Yeah. Where it's it's a structured into two halves. Mm-hmm. And both halves comment on each other. Sure. And both halves subvert each other. Where the first half of Seven Chances him being rejected so resolutely that it's ironic that he's running from yeah. from thousands of brides. And this now he's actually it's, in him, the war. it's him it's hit this it's him chasing a train and then it's him being chased. Yeah. And it subverts the way And and the reason he is success, the reason he is the the victorious in in both being chased and chasing is because he's just so good at operating this train. Yeah. Um, Of course, one of the funny things because it's a comedy, he subverts it. There's like they like he mocks his. He's very self deprecating or his character. Um, is obsessed with the train, and he's not trying to save his girlfriend. He's trying to save the train. Yeah. <laughs> like he when he gives his girlfriend a picture of him. It's a picture. It's this the funniest picture like ever. <laughs> it's just still photo of him yeah. looking really goofy in front of his train. train. Yeah. Um. And then when the and when it, when he finally finds his captured girlfriend and he frees her and she goes, I can't believe you went all this way for me. He's like, um, yeah, yeah, for you. <laughs> <It's> like, <there's laughs> definitely like it's
0: making fun of how good he is at being. But and it's also just great, and I always love it in movies where, especially, moments involving that canon, where you think, "Oh shit, what the yeah. fuck!" And he you subverts your expectations by having it all work out.
1: But um, he sets up the gag first. Oh yeah, where he, he sets up the canon, and it barely does anything, right? And then, of course, then he, like he sets it up by putting and that the sort whole of echoes of throughout power. the later in the movie right. with, at the war. He's just superb at structuring these these moments, right? Um, but Again, this movie is kind of mind blowing to watch. Like, you have to keep reminding yourself that they did this. Yeah. They did it. He climbed in front of a train, and there's a moment where he isn't looking at the train and it's sneaking up on him, and he has to allow himself to, to sort of tumble on and catch himself on the cow catcher. Mm-hmm. But there's, it could have easily gone the other way where he falls and gets crumped, like, he gets crushed by the train. It could have right. easily gone the other way a million other times where he's climbing around on the train. I heard people were freaking out in the theater when the train
0: exploded on the railroad track and crashed it's into the river. It's the most river.
1: expensive stunt. Yeah. Ever. I'm sure adjusted for inflation, it might still be the most expensive stunt ever but A lot filmed. of people like actually
0: thought there was a conductor in the window. Which is right. kind of crazy. I mean, yeah. another dumb. Well, it's just, idea, they're but... not
1: used to it. Yeah. Just, there's just no precedent for that kind of destruction. And again, if you are the kind of person who doesn't want to watch silent films because you're afraid they're going to be too, you're only going to appreciate them on a, you know, a cerebral level or a historical level, but you like action movies and stuff like that, like... The, you have to love. this There's if you're no like, like the the explosion of Nakatomi Plaza. The like there's this this whole film, by the way, is very loosely the same structure as Die Hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> I never thought of that. Like yeah. it's pre- and it's and it's the same sort of uh Guy combination to a situation of comedy and action. On. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's behind enemy lines and stuff. But like the destruction of that train is um, was a million dollar, million point two or something like. Dollar Stunt, where it's just, oh yeah, we're just going to crash a train, and we're going to crush this whole bridge. And he didn't tell the soldiers. (laughs) He didn't tell all the extras who were being the soldiers. Yeah. So, like, you see their reaction? He was good
0: like that. He didn't also, uh, you know... Uh, when he had the actress and they were working with that water pipe, yeah. and the water just starts spilling all over her, that wasn't planned. Like that is
1: her legitimate reaction. He's a brilliant man, too, because yeah. he's not someone who grew up making films. You have done it like his first films in 1920. His first films in 1920. This is only six years later. So now, granted, uh, back in those days, you could make twenty films in six years. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it's not as if this is a, I, and this is this this is the culmination of his career. After this, this was a flop. Um, actually, the credit. general, Cause, yeah, because no one, because uh, I think it was like it's hard to say exactly why because it's so maybe they're baffling. expecting
0: more comedy.
1: Yes, that was definitely one of the things they're expecting it to be funnier. Um, there's And also, I don't think they – like, the idea of mixing uh, action comedy just didn't – like, it didn't make sense yeah. to them. They had no precedent for it. Um, critics – by the way, the fact that there were film critics in 1926, like, tickles me pink. I know. I've heard that too. <laughs> like I love that idea. I want to read what film criticism was back when it was a thing. Like, I'm yeah. sure – the same way people are like, oh, 48 frames per second, that's going to destroy cinema. I'm sure, there are, <laughs> I'm sure there are editorials about how close-ups were going to destroy right. cinema. Like, the audience, <laughs> scientifically speaking, are not prepared to be abruptly interrupted to a close-up of an actor's face. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are tons of shit like that. So, But I don't think critics were prepared for the idea of, oh, this is both funny and action-packed. Instead, they go, it's not funny enough to be a comedy – and yeah. it's not properly dramatic enough cuz there's not really a story in the general there's a premise there's like a scenario but it's not really a story there's no arc um
0: yeah it's just a series of unfortunate events or fortunate events for however you want to look at it i just think it's a brilliant integration of like uh you know momentum when it comes to the narrative like and he he knows his trajectory he has the machine being the train and then there's yeah. the gags surrounding it all and yet there's all these incredible moments of coincidence where, oops, I think something's going to fuck up, but, oh, it's not. It yeah. all works out for the best. In fact, it actually helps. That which I think true. is great. I just love that shit. I always eat that up in any comedy or movie. And that's
1: why I never I never viewed, as much as Keaton works in devices and people being foiled by devices and mm-hmm. technologies, Like I never read his films the same way I read, like, Chaplin's like modern times, where man is caught in the cog, and yeah, yeah, man in like he. I think Buster Keaton loved all of that, and I, I think he couldn't get enough. Of I mean, he clearly loved technology, hmm. like even uh, simple things as like uh, there's a part where um, someone burns a hole. Like he's hiding under a table. Someone burns a hole in the tablecloth with a cigar. And he peeks through the hole and sees his girlfriend who's been captured, right, uh-huh. and that is an insert shot where he compiled two shots: one of the tablecloth and then one of her face uh, in the hole. Like that's just so innovative. Yeah, Even before, I mean, twenty years before Orson Welles. Right, he didn't invent that. Though this mentioning Orson Welles, this Orson Welles says this is the greatest. Uh, Comedy ever made, the greatest Civil War movie ever made, and probably the greatest movie ever made. That was Orson Welles' take on the general. But um, I, like it's he, an astonishing thing to watch now. The, yeah, and the harmony of man and machine is what makes this so astonishing. The guy that the fact that he can slide down a cowcatcher, holding a log, yeah. and knock another log out just in time. That's...
0: Yeah, that's fucking great. <laughs> all of it is,
1: like, it's just, it's just scene after scene of things of perfect escalation. Obstacles. And, and it's, things it... you cannot believe you're watching.
0: I think Double Dare was inspired by Buster Keaton. <laughs> like, they yes. just watched it and tried to think of the most fucked Double up Double Dare,
1: Nickelodeon's Guts. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. The glo- Global Guts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all wild and crazy kids to a lesser extent. There's all sorts of Nickelodeon programming. Hey, dude! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that's inspired by his film Go West. Ah, uh, yeah, which I hadn't seen. No, it's not it's not one of his better ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general might be the, uh, a master. You want to talk about? But uh, bring up. I. It's hard for me to to properly bring up because it's it's both the funniest thing to me and also the most offensive thing. Hmm. And it's just one of those unfortunate things that is just both super offensive and also super funny. Like, like any, Mur- I always bring up the example of Eddie Murphy standup, um, as something like that. But, uh, the fact that his girlfriend is this dumb... Like, just played as this dumb broad who's just like, doesn't know how anything works! Yeah. Like, is super, like, regressive and... I mean, I suppose... There's some, of that, ni- the, I, there's some of that in The Navigator when they're in the kitchen. I suppose in 1926 it wasn't regressive. It was just, sadly, par for the course. But, but like, it's, it's very... It's very misogynistic and stuff. But at the same time, him interacting with her are my favorite scenes. Um, like... The fucking the way he the way she's like throwing little twigs into the in, yeah, yeah, into yeah. the engine, and he hands her like a little piece of bark that she missed, and then and she and she goes oh thanks, she throws it in, and he shakes her like are you fucking crazy, <laughs> and then he kisses her, and then he goes back to his like that to me is the funniest moment. Like, yeah, as many jaw dropping like astounding moments are in the film. I kind of sums him up in a way too. What's how's that? Well, I just feel like
0: he's always doing something to like, like just throwing in a little bit like that to, you know, uh, incorporate into that moment is kind of like, I don't know. He does these things subtly. Yeah. You know, but I mean, it could just be the lack of expression that really stands out because I'd never seen anything like that before. I think it, I'm used I, to more. I'm again, I more used general,
1: to that. I think in general, um, old, I think in general comedy of that era was broad. Sure. And I think that he was much more specific than his, than any of his contemporaries. Yeah. Um, but he didn't always just rely on
0: slapstick. I mean, he falls down and right. you know, goofy things happen.
1: No, no, no. But yeah, and I think specific character moments. Like, for example, yeah. when he – when uh, the – the caboose that the, uh, the the trainee's chasing, and they dropped it in front of him, and he's pushing it. Mm-hmm. He goes to do something, and then suddenly he sees it's no longer there. Like there's just a moment where he just like blinks for a second, and then yeah. like looks at like what the fuck just happened. Like moments like that, like he could have done a big double take. He could have shaken his head and go what, but yeah. but I think he's just too specific. And again, you're in the middle of a chase. No one who is sitting on their laurels would be in the middle of this chase and go. Now, how can I have a moment in between, uh, in between Buster Keaton and Marion and Mac? Mm-hmm. You know, like they're just gonna, they're just gonna be focused on the chase. But he's very detailed and he's very much, he's thinks- very consistent with his character. And too. He's, yeah, well yeah, consistent with the character, but also just he's constantly thinking of how he can make things better. Yeah,
0: um, and there, are- there's just like a symmetry to all this that is just. I'm I'm still processing it because I've never seen it. So I mean, even when I saw Sherlock Jr. and the fact that uh, in the movie theater scene, just the way that plays, I would say
1: Sherlock Jr. is both technically as far as what he does with the camera, yeah, and and the just crazy as far
0: chase as, that plays out towards the end of that, too. but also
1: just the special effects he invents, yeah. And, yeah where he steps into the screen and stuff like that. I was like,
0: fuck, I can't believe he did that back in the
1: day. And and I think that's also a funnier movie than The General. But The General is just, like, this achievement. Like, he pulled it off. And you can't believe he pulled it off. And it's so perfectly executed. And even though it's uh, it's probably a good, like, 15 minutes longer than most of his feature films, the pacing is perfect. There's the one moment that you need to breathe... And even right, then, right. He, he's he got some pretty good gags in there. Sure. Um, but he doesn't, you know, because like this and Seven Chances, he doesn't waste time with story. Mm-hmm. He sets up a scenario and then he unfolds yeah. it.
0: Yeah, well, within the first five minutes most of the Whereas time. Whereas
1: a lot of his other films, uh, there's a story and they su- a lot of his other feature films, I should say, they, he, there's a story and they suffer for it. Um, Steamboat Bill Jr., where he's constantly trying to impress his father, it gets kind of tiring to... Have to keep track of where him and his... because I don't think he's as good of a storyteller as he is as a f- just quote unquote as uh, just making scenes. Well, and that making doesn't filmmakers. that doesn't have to be his strength? No, absolutely. No, I'm not saying that as an insult. I'm just yeah. saying the reason what makes the general in seven chances stand out in his filmography and Sherlock Jr. I think mm-hmm. um, I would put Sherlock Jr. right up there.
0: Yeah, I think there's just this purity and like a lucidity to his vision. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah, that I, I mean, sometimes I'm like. Fuck! I can't even laugh because I'm just like in awe of it, and it's so great to see something now and you know looking back and watching a silent film and going, I can appreciate this in the same way I would a Paul Thomas Anderson movie today. Yeah, you know,
1: and that's and and I think it's that specific specificity specificity is why he's aged so well. Yeah, because um, because whereas. Just people making faces and falling down and like getting bitten by pigs or whatever yeah. like is comedy, It was considered just fine, like acceptable comedy in a lot of uh, the silent era. Um, I yeah, mean, I it- wouldn't say. Also,
0: maybe uh, to to go back and rephrase what i was saying earlier maybe it's not so much man versus machine but man versus nature because a lot of there's a lot of violent forces that come into
1: play that affect his ability to When you say to, nature you don't mean like the will like nature in it you mean like fate almost
0: Yeah sometimes fate i mean but it could be literally like obviously
1: with storms and Other you know than rivers and avalanches yeah. I don't i think i yeah i i think if you were sort of like he views it he views the world as out uh, as just like an insurmountable amount of obstacles, yeah, um, colliding with one another. But you can't even say insurmountable because he he overcomes, right? Um, I think that's what makes it so uplifting. Yeah, and that's what makes it so appealing, and that's why why you can get sentimental about it, even though he isn't actually like smiling, and yeah. is because he, the essential worldview of these films is you just have to try your hardest, and it, things will work out. But yeah. when I say try your hardest, I mean you got to really go above yeah. and beyond, <laughs> like so. But yeah, his films I think are essentially optimistic, and which is great because it it, it fits. You know, I mean they're comedies, number one, so sure. they, they can't be dour. But uh, I want to talk about a couple
0: of his short films. No, absolutely. Real quick. Because I saw cops and I thought it was awesome. That's actually one of the few
1: I have not seen, but I've yeah, heard it's his, I mean, it's one of his best.
0: Yeah, it, it's again set up in like practically the first couple minutes where he plays uh, in a, a guy who's kind of searching to become a successful businessman in order to win over the girl he loves. It seems like that's a lot of a lot of his scenarios involves right. trying to win over the girl he loves, but he winds up like I don't know if it's accidentally, but he no he he actually intentionally steals. From the sheriff's wallet, not knowing he's the sheriff, and wackiness ensues, and all these you know coincidences and miscommunications occur. But again, you know he's crashing a police parade, uh, using an anarchist bomb to light a cigarette, and of course it explodes on all the unsuspecting cops. A, a literal anarchist, yeah, that's great. <laughs> but you know, again, it's watching it. Uh, you know, just again, effortlessly play out in these great stunts, especially the ladder becoming a seesaw over a fence mm-hmm. with the police on the other side and him trying to balance it out and him trying to like fling over all of this stuff and him running into more cops. And it becomes another chase picture with cops.
1: Yeah. And which the, the Mac, where I think most of his short films at sort of the Mac, Max Senate uh, production, I don't know if they're studios or what, but, um, the, they, they sort of invented the, the keystone cops. Yeah. And that's sort of, that was a very standard thing to happen in a, in a, in a two reel sort of comedy mm-hmm. would just be a huge chase with cops and cops were always bumbling. Yeah, Yep. 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 I mean, they're always <laughs> ineffectual. The cops in seven chances where he gets in line with their sort of March right. and then they see all the women and that's the cops hilarious. are like, eh, we're getting out of here. Yeah. <laughs> But it, I will say it has one of my
0: favorite final shots and all the Buster Keaton things I've yeah. seen. It's so it's so much like a cartoon. It's right. so beautiful. I well, love that's, it. Yeah, that's where cartoons are drawing from yeah. again. Um, yeah, it's hard for me to. But I've seen that one week and <coughs> <coughs> sorry, haunted house.
1: Yeah, Keystone Studios is the uh, is the is what they founded. So that's where, um, but. The Haunted House is great um, because there's a lot of fun special effects and also there's just really – just the level of gags.
0: That's where it starts off in a bank, right? Yeah. Ooh, lost my voice. That's
1: fine. Ah, Don't Um, come back. Haunted House, I mean, uh, again, there's – there's the the boat which takes place on a boathouse there's the haunted house there's the electric house there's the playhouse like he loves cre- he loves creating uh, sets and environments for these sort of all these gags to play off um I th- I, you really lost your voice
0: no i think i'm i think it's back
1: okay yeah i think so too <laughs> all right good um i found it um, but i one week to me is one of the best scenes about relation, one of the best scenes, one of the best films about relationships ever, because it is just literally like the only thing that redeems the couple in one week. And this is one of the few films where the, the wife doesn't seem like just a handful, like just, just dead weight. Uh, like, Uh, Like, the only thing that keeps them together is the fact that they stick together. Like, every possible thing that goes wrong in their marriage can go wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just like, at the end of it, they just have to decide to stick together and just, well, we're homeless now, so we're homeless. And I love that sentiment. And, I mean, One Week is also just one of the funniest movies ever, and... Um, there's a lot of interesting, like, there's a shot where a tornado is blowing, is just spinning his house around, and there's a shot inside the house, which is actually 360 degrees, uh, which follows the people sort of tumbling around the house as it spins, and the camera rotates 360 degrees around the set. Couldn't believe it. I don't know if they, I've ever seen that in any silent film. If that's Uh, ever been done in any other silent film. Um, again...
0: But it's like, I mean, a lot of people would want to rely on more mayhem, but he does it with such pace and momentum throughout yeah. and the way this thing's build and build over the 7 day structure i think he was actually inspired by uh, there there was i don't know if it was another short film or something but he, i remember seeing briefly on like a quick little documentary about it where he w- learned about this actually existing where you could a couple could get a house and yeah. learn to build it all on their own too so it wasn't just like completely concocted from from his imagination, but he, of course, he takes it to the next level.
1: Yeah, it's it's the it's the it's it's taking something in reality yeah. and then moving it to the next level is what makes it great. Um, and again, yeah, it. It's, and another it, it's,
0: cartoon it, moment where the guy changes the letters or changes the numbers on the boxes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he might as well just twirled his mustache. Yeah, he he, <laughs> he might have well been uh, peeped thwarting uh, go- Goofy. Um, yeah, but um, it's interesting you bring up mayhem because I think yeah something that would. You know, the, despite the fact that you know his gags are often rapid fire and they're really well thought out, and they're very funny. Like, like he almost feels like the anti Marx Brothers to me because the Marx Brothers oh, are so yeah. scorched earth anarchy. Like nothing means anything, right, and they're right. just about like it's just about the Marx Brothers arriving to a location. Oh, but Buster Keaton
0: wants to make it work. Yeah, he's and trying he, desperately to make and it he,
1: work. Yeah, whereas his worldview is the opposite, where it's no things make sense. It's just it's really hard, and you have to work yeah. hard to to like sort of piece together a sense out of it. Um I mean obviously both approaches are great, but uh I really appreciate that sort of sentiment um in in the Buster Keaton films. Um so uh let's see. The one week um Yeah, I mean, what would
0: be your like top Buster Keaton shorts? Okay.
1: Sherlock Junior, if you count it, it almost feels like a weird in-between place in between yeah. the shorts. Yeah, the, it does. The two real shorts and the features, but Sherlock Junior one week, uh the haunted house, yeah, uh, yeah. the goat, uh where Didn't he's mistaken for a criminal is very funny um, there's the high sign where uh he's sort of broke and destitute, and he starts off in a boardwalk and eventually he stumbles upon the secret society of like robbers. um The high sign is almost as funny as one week that movie that has some of his most classic gags. Which I like were, I like neighbors too. That was really good. Neighbors like him swinging through
0: the different houses neighbor, and through the clotheslines
1: again. What I was talking about the way he builds spaces. No one. Yeah. And I mean, I think I've talked about this in the past. Like one of the things I love about films is the way you can create these three dimensional spaces in your head. No one creates spaces like Buster Keaton. He's creates two buildings, two stories, and like a lot of the shots you see, but the whole entirety of both two story buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I would think Wes Anderson
0: must kind of slightly be inspired by that inventiveness with sets, I think.
1: Oh yeah. I mean there's the the shot in the general where the two kids are following Buster and then Annabelle is following the two kids and him. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's very and that, that tracking shot's very Wes Anderson. Definitely. And, I mean Wes Anderson again takes from so many, it's hard to, but it if you want to compare the two, I'd say the thing that most ties them together would be the way that they both have very highly controlled worlds. Right. Um
0: and they feel very lived in at the
1: same time. I feel yeah. like
0: you could be there with this, this crazy world. It feels like you can relate to some of the more domesticated issues he comes across. Or if you wound up on a boat like in the Navigator and you had to adapt accordingly and yeah. try and cook in the kitchen. And- oh,
1: there, there's – and, he, and he, he invents a lot of wonderful Rube Goldberg kind of machine. Like there's a the Scarecrow yeah. in which him – uh and one of his f- most frequent collaborators i think is the the villain in one week but it's hard for me to uh i can't remember his name at the moment but uh one of his uh most frequent collaborators often as the villain but sometimes as his friend like they're they're roommates and they're living together and they have this whole setup where um, all the condiments are swinging from string above the table, and they have to pass them. Like oh, they nice. have to swing them back to each other, and everything folds back up. And it's a very, uh, it's a very Rube Goldberg kind of inspired thing. And I, I don't know the timeline. Rube Goldberg might have come after Buster Keaton or before, um, but I can't remember exactly when he was originally doing his like newspaper illustrations. But um, yeah, and. So Buster Keaton loves you know, devices and stuff. Uh, so anyway, uh, One Week, High Sign, Sherlock Jr., The Electric House, The Haunted House, The Goat, um, The Scarecrow's good. It's not quite there, but none of his shorts other than like the super early ones like Convict 18 or some of the less inspired ones like Daydreams uh, hmm. are really bad. Uh, none of like all of his shorts are just twenty minutes, and there's uh, there's always at least like a half a dozen things that just n- make you go, oh holy cow! Like that's so yeah. genius. I never would have thought of that. Um, so yeah, I love his sh- yeah his short films, and uh, m- you know more so than his than his features. But his features, the only one I've ad- ever flat out not liked was Battling Butler. Hmm. Um, which I thought they'd do more with him because it's him. He gets mistaken for a famous boxer, and then he has to sort of oh. pass himself off as a f- boxer. Oh, that's gotta be fun! Yeah, yeah, you would uh, think, but there's not a lot's done hmm. with it. Um, and again, uh, what's his name from Seven Chances? Snitz Edwards uh, oh, yeah. s- steals that movie. Snitz is so funny. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, Summarize it summarizes. Like like most comedies, it it's more fun to watch than to talk about. <laughs> Well, I, I think his his
0: comedy is like, uh, you know, found on the principles of physics, practically. Yeah. How can I defy them, and how can I... At the same time, it he, he feels like it complements his environment at the same time. That scene, again, where he throws the log on the railroad tracks in the general feels so natural, so instinctual, like, oh, this is something I would just do. Ooh. And he, he, he has this, like he sort of embraces like this uh, almost like invisible substructure that we can all not really hone in on that sort of keeps the universe from flying apart in all these different directions. It's, and it's also like a lot of it, especially with the boulders falling down in Seven Chances, inspired a lot of
1: video games. That's actually <laughs> what I was going to bring up next. What I was, I've, I've gotten back into sort of indie games and stuff. Yeah. I've downloaded a lot of indie games from Steam. and
0: I want to try Super Meat Boy because I like the uh, indie game The Movie. That's a very good documentary. That's
1: no, it's a good documentary. Super Meat Boy is it's more of a a Twitch kind of uh, gameplay. But I was thinking like uh, what something that some developers do. They have game jams where they design, (laughs) where like they they take a week and they just they have a theme and then they split up into teams. They have to all design games and it's. I would love to see a Buster Keaton game jam because like (laughs) the environment and neighbors and so much of the general and the chase and seven chances and the electric house. And like, there's so many scenes in so many of his films that I'm like, it feels like that would make a fun, like flash game or something. Like if you were like, imagine if you were like, had to bounce around the environment and the neighbors and you had to utilize all the clotheslines and Mm -hmm. the swinging boards and everything. And, and, again, they're all physics-based, which is right. a very popular thing to do in video games nowadays is to create platformers that are based on a lot of different kinds of physics. Um, so, yeah, that's another thing I kept thinking about. I'm like, oh, man, I'd love to see a game of this. <laughs> yeah, I know. That'd be great. <laughs> which you can't Stone say about any movies. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. I'm looking forward to checking out more shorts.
1: Yeah, and I have that Kino box set. Yeah. So if you want to borrow anything from me, just let me know. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. That was great. And if you the listener want to borrow anything from me, tough luck. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Um, unless you live in Chicago, you never know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, probably not. Okay. Um, top 3. Top 3. Okay, we're including
1: short films in this, right? Yeah. I guess we could. Yeah, cuz I did, I've included short films from directors in the past. One of my favorite uh shit. A... <laughs> <laughs> Who directed Velvet Goldmine? Todd Haynes. Yeah. One of my favorite Todd Haynes movies was one of his short films. Right. Um, my favorite Buster I think King you liked the Jane Campion short film too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So top three. Um, let's see. Mm. Number one would be Seven Chances. Uh, number two would be One Week. And number three would be The General.
0: Very close. Um, I'm going to go with number one, One Week. Just blew my mind. Yeah. As of watching it. And number two, the general, and number three, oh, Sherlock Junior, Seven Chances. Yeah, tough call. There, there's about si- call. there's about
1: six Keaton films where you can't go wrong in yeah. any order. Like they're just they're just masterpieces. They're so mind. I'm so glad right?
0: I got to ca- catch up with this. Yeah, guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the great discoveries of the year. Yeah. for me. <laughs> Yeah
1: long overdue you heard it here first director's club podcast says Buster Keaton is a must buy put it on the poster we should make posters yeah, the, the Buster Keaton
0: poster <laughs> no for us oh I mean we don't have to put our faces on it because then nobody we'll would want to buy it. Keaton's face on it yeah
1: I think we should it'll just say Sherlock jr. <laughs> we, won't, we won't put any director's club branding on it yeah we'll sell more so
0: for our next episode guess what no director this time we had no guest next time no director the time after that no microphones (gasps) we're really just stripping it down (laughs) that's exciting yeah uh so we're gonna do our best of 2012 episode which everybody always looks forward to those end of year lists that i really get excited about um I don't know if we'll ha- have seen Zero Dark Thirty by that time. To be honest, we'll see. When does that come out? January fourth, when i was, which is when I kind of wanted to record the
1: episode. Oh, well. we'll
0: see, because we're bumping up against school coming up that next week. So, oh yeah, it'll be tough. It'll be okay. tougher. So we'll try. We'll try yeah. our best. Yeah. Um, until then, we're really not doing a whole lot other than watching 2012 movies and getting ready for the Clip Show. So, yeah. we'll figure out a structure for, you'll either get uh, you know one or at least one and maybe a bonus episode of the Clip Show. So, we'll see. We'll see what we decide on. Until then, I really would appreciate some more iTunes reviews, so visit that if you wish. Uh, click on the stars and give us a nice review. We really appreciate it. And visit our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Send us
1: an email your favorite movies at your favorite movies of 2012 at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 224 366 9528. Let me say it one more time. Get out your phone, get ready to put it in. 224 366 9528.
0: Empire, yeah, exactly. And uh, find me at Twitter if you wish. Instant Jim,
1: find me at Twitter at Patrick Repol,
0: and I'm at Letterboxed where you can keep up with all of the
1: movies I'm watching. And I'm at Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot uh, WordPress dot com. Uh, I realize often I go back and forth between saying WordPress and Blogspot, and it's actually WordPress. So it is WordPress. Yeah.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're really looking forward to talking to you very soon about our best of 2012 episode. So, talk to you then. Yep. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Called The Loneliest Planet. Is it worth watching now that it's on Netflix Instant? Mm-hmm. And I notice it's made what of... What character <laughs> is this? this is you're like happens. this pedantic
1: college professor <laughs> <laughs> who delivers all his lectures and questions that are actually statements.
0: You're, if you did that. You might be right. You may be crazy.
1: Yeah. It just might be a lunatic you're looking for, Jim. You're right. Jim, I rode my motorcycle <laughs> in the rain.
0: Buster was a Phil Collins movie
1: from the 80s. He had he did movies? Yeah. Phil Collins was an actor? Yeah.
0: I'm pretty sure he was in a movie called Buster. <laughs> <laughs>